This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. like Frank Sinatra, have very few regrets in life, probably too few to mention. If I were to make a list of recent regrets over the last few years, though, I think one of the first that come to my mind is the fact that uh, when my wife and I got married uh, just a little over three years ago, we had one of the most famous artists in America, not only someone whose paintings have been celebrated from coast to coast and internationally, but who watching him paint those paintings is a a, a performance in and of itself. And he was in attendance at the wedding, and yet we did not try to get him to be entertainment at the wedding, and he just gave us a plain old regular wedding gift of something lame like cash or something. Had I known or had my, had my wits about me, I would have said, you've got to put on the incredible sort of painting performance that you do that you've raised millions of dollars for charity for all over the years, all, all through the years, all over the country, because people would have gotten a real kick out of that. And I am very, very excited, because joining me for the next hour, is not only one of the most talented artists that I've ever seen, uh, not only somebody who is a great American patriot, and even if you disagree with his politics, is a dogged activist for all the causes that he believes is right, he's also the subject of a fascinating new documentary, which we're going to tell you about in a moment. I am thrilled to welcome somebody that is no stranger to this audience and no stranger to me, uh, my old friend, artist, activist, etc., Scott Lebedo. Scott, great to see you. Awesome, Frank. Always a pleasure, man. I was just telling my buddy Chris, my director, how you started out, what, we were like 11 years old, <laughs> and everybody was blown away. It was cable TV or something, and you were doing this little thing, and people were like, who is this genius guy? He's like, Yeah, I used to. people used to be impressed that I was so much of a prodigy. Now everybody is amazed that I'm so far over the hill and never, <laughs> ever accomplished anything. But uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. I want to welcome Chris Martini as well. We're going to talk a little bit about Chris's involvement with the documentary Relentless Patriot. Chris, it's great to meet you in person. Frank, thank you very much for having me. And uh, obviously, I'm a big fan of the last name. Uh, I prefer Bombay Sapphire, but uh, to each their own when it comes to martinis, right? It's a lot to live up to. (laughs) All right. Now, Scott, uh, a lot of people know who you are. You've been covered not only on this radio network, but on some of the biggest cable news broadcasts, Fox News, the New York Post, everywhere. But there still might be some people that are unfamiliar with you, and hopefully that's where the documentary Relentless Patriot will help. We'll tell people about that in a second. I think you kind of first got national acclaim, and correct me if I'm wrong, by being the artist that painted American flags in all 50 states around the country. Is that really kind of your first uh, big, uh, um, you know, acclaim nationally? It opened me up. It opened me up. But I started doing the flags back in the uh, early 90s, and I actually started the uh, pro-American activism using my art, you know, as a New York City artist back in the 90s. You know, I went to go find myself in the big city. You know, I'm coming from Staten Island. For those of you who don't know Staten Island, 
New York City is one of the biggest liberal cities in the world, but Staten Island is like any other little town in West Virginia, Wyoming. It's working class, hardworking firemen, cops, EMTs, sanitation, veterans, military, and uh, patriots. So much of your brand now has come uh, has come to involve being conservative and being an artist. Uh, let's talk about artistry first, right? And then we could talk about how conservatism kind of evolved and where the two met. How long have you been uh, involved in the arts? Uh, since a child. Since I you were a child. Yeah. So always, what sparked always. your interest? It just came natural. My mom was uh, restless soul. She was a great draftsman, beautiful artist, but she never did anything with it because she had us crazy kids. And my dad, I like to say, can build the Taj Mahal with a Home Depot gift card. <laughs> he built our house that we lived in. It took him five years. He did it by himself. So I sculpt and I paint and I got both of those. You know, I got it all from my parents. And I've always had it. Even in school, I just created, I created. I did a lot of surrealism and wild stuff and monsters and Whatever I could do. And then uh, it was back in the 90s where I went to go find myself here in the big city where you could make it anywhere. This is the art mecca, you know, for the for America. And I saw the hatred towards America, our military, our traditional values. In the arts community. Yes. And it totally devastated me. Did you always, even when you were a younger guy uh, trying to make your way in the arts, did you always identify as a conservative? No. 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 I I chased girls. I did my extracurricular activity as any young 15, 16, 20. You weren't attending young Republican meetings and donating to Reagan or anything like that? No. It was back in the early 90s when, you know, I saw, I said, wait a minute, what's going on here? And that's actually, you know, that's the Gulf War. It was Mm -hmm. 91. And that actually opened my mind up a little bit, you know, took me out of me going out, being the artist, you know, uh, you know, hey, ladies, I'm an artist and do, you know, I did the thing. I did the thing. And I never really paid attention. And then that knocked my socks off. And I said, here, I have a calling. And I just found it. One of the uh, first things that I think people recognized you for, even if they didn't know you personally, your kind of signature became a lot of uh, business owners around where we grew up and where we live would take walls that were uh, graffitied and vandalized and uh, uh, walls all around the community that looked like eyesores, mm-hmm. and you they'd bring you in, and you would un- paint over the graffiti with an American flag, uh, always a different style of American yes, flag, yes. never looked exactly the same, wasn't like this boilerplate, no, one, no two American flag murals right. looked exactly the same. There's a lot of people out there that consider that graffiti art, and they use the term graffiti artists. A lot of graffiti artists have as made I do as a artist. lot of money. Yes. So uh, that's what I was going to ask you. What do you think of graffiti as an art form? Well, I, people ask me all the time, didn't you start with the graffiti? I never did anything illegal that way. I know, not that I'm knocking it, but there is some most beautiful... Graffiti is part of our culture, especially in New York. You remember, you remember, I mean, I'm a little older than you. The 70s and 80s, the train stations, every train had graffiti. You know, Chris is, uh, understands... And some of it was just beautiful, like real artwork. But then there's just like three letters spray painted on the, somebody's be- on the side of somebody's beautiful building, which isn't art. It's just three letters, just like a tag. That That's not art. That's not art. You know? You've become, I want to say in the last 20 years, kind of the go-to guy that when people have – uh, even before uh, Trump, right, you were sort of in the Northeast, the go-to 
right of center populist voice, if there was a protest about tolls, if there was a protest about a cultural issue, if there was a pro if there was something involving um, the Virgin Mary being um, decorated with elephant dung, for instance, you were kind of taxpayers money. <laughs> with taxpayer money. You were always the kind of the person that people would look to as the voice of the silent majority. Uh, tell me how you kind of grew into that role. That's part of where it came from, which is back in the 90s when I found my calling, when I saw the creative people, us creatives have more freedoms than anybody else. And that's what blew my mind, that they were biting the hand that feeds them. And that is not only that American flag, but at the men and women that bleed underneath it for us artists to express ourselves and test the boundaries. See, I, more than you, Frank, get to test that boundary. Mm-hmm. Of the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. And it is the most sexiest thing in the world. And for the see the art world, the majority of the art world to, you know, urinate on that, it drew, drew, drove me nuts. And that's where I saw the beginning of political correctness, wokeism, and cancel culture, which was back in the early 90s when I noticed it. And I said, this thing is going to grow tremendous. So I used my art as my voice to fight against this and be the voice of people that wanted to fight against it. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Scott Lebedo, a longtime friend of mine. He's a patriotic artist and an activist and the subject of the new documentary, The Relentless Patriot, also joined in studio for the hour by Chris Martini, uh, the director of that documentary, which we're going to tell you about in a moment. Uh, you can learn more about Scott in, and his work and see a lot of his work at uh, scottlobedo.com. That's L-O-B-A-I-D-O. You can also find Scott on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you name it. Uh, I mentioned Donald Trump, and uh, we, we could talk about Trump for five hours and still not cover <laughs> all the ground there is to cover. But one of the recent incidents where you got a lot of acclaim for is you um, you created an art installation of a, dry, a giant uh, kind of Trump tea. Uh, drew his attention. It was vandalized. Uh, Trump called the owner of that, uh, of that artwork. Tell me about that. Uh, what was it about uh, Trump that so attracted you to him and allowed it to motivate so much of the artwork that you ended up doing? Trump is exactly like me because I am an artist and the art world refuses to acknowledge that and they will do everything to bring me down. The same thing with Donald Trump. He is not a politician. He's a leader. He's a representative. Okay, the reason that we have all of this woke stuff that's going on right now, the reason we have this is Donald Trump, not because he got elected. Donald Trump got elected because the left took it too far. This is before Trump. They went too far. I watched this grow for 30 years as well as you did. And that's the number one reason Trump got elected. And I said, that's the guy. When he when they he had his first rally in Chicago Mm -hmm. and they shut him down. You remember that? Yeah. They shut this man's down to become the president, to want to become. I said, that's I said, that's the next president of the United States. And he better be. Tell me about your conversation with uh, Donald Trump when he called you when the Trump tea that you had created was vandalized. Yeah, I just put up this 12 foot red, white and blue tea just to represent Trump because everybody's lawn signs that said Trump were getting destroyed. So I just put this giant red, white and blue tea up. And the next day it was on a friend of mine's property. Uh, Sam Parazola, who's actually just uh, became yeah, the state assembly. Yeah. Yep. Um, and he lets me use his property to do all sorts of artwork. And he said, put it up. And the next day, somebody set it on fire. And that thing was 10 feet away from his house. Wow. Where his family was. So it became a national story. And we reached out to the Trump campaign. And Trump called the house while we were there because I was building it. 
you know, and then I got mm-hmm. on the phone with him, and he said, uh, "Yeah, you guys are great." He first actually he said, "Ah, you're you're a little too you're a little more famous than me today," <laughs> you know, his ego thing, which was funny. It was a joke, you know, because I was it was this the biggest sure. news story, and I said, "Don't worry, Mr. Trump, I'm going to make it bigger. It's going to be huge," <laughs> and he got a kick out of that. So we built it bigger. Uh, and, I'm going to play folks the trailer to the documentary, but tell me, um, you've also done a lot of work to. Uh, commemorate the September 11th attacks. I know uh, Mount Loretto, which is kind of the hub of uh, Catholic charities in uh, in New York City, they displayed uh, an art installation that you created to honor the victims of the uh, September 11th attacks. Uh, tell me, tell me, how do you decide which causes to focus on? You focused on veteran suicide. You focused on Mother Cabrini when Mother Cabrini was under attack. Uh, the uh, situation in Afghanistan, as I alluded to, the September 11th attacks. There's only so many hours we all have in the day. You somehow managed to cram in 50 hours worth of work in only a 24-hour day. How do you pick what causes that you're going to showcase in your art? That's a good question. Whatever peaks, whatever gets to the top of the pot because there's so many and it just, I just feel it. And it's like, I need to keep this going because we go through stuff so quickly nowadays with technology and social media. So a couple of days later, there's this art installation that's there for weeks and months and it makes you keep thinking about that important issue. All right. Well, there's a documentary out. Well, that will soon be out about you called the relentless Patriot. And we're going to find out how you and uh, Chris Martini uh, met and how this collaboration came to be and where people will be able to see uh, this documentary. But first, and if you want to see the visuals, of this documentary, which I it really encourage you to do because a lot of it is visual. Go to scottlobedo.com. That's L-O-B-A-I-D-O.com. But this is what the trailer to The Relentless Patriot sounds like. 11-month-old girl shot in the face because of broke criminal-loving district attorneys. Come on, murderer. This is a street performance. Seems like all the artist activists are on the left. Ah. Except Scott Lebedo. I do not conform to the elitist isms of the art clubs, and they have left me like a redheaded stepchild. This is my medium in which I shall create, and this is my canvas, the front of the Brooklyn Museum. The first most important thing in school or anywhere else is the Pledge of Allegiance. This is not a pro-war protest. This has to do with the increasing level of anti-Americanism. They don't keep the criminals in jail. They're not going to keep you in jail. This line is to show respect and honor to those who died. Got shot in the f***ing head. Protecting us. You try to take that f***ing blue line down. I'll paint it till the day I die. When the towers came down, there was absolutely no doubt uh, that that feeling. It was going to change my life. And it did. When somebody's complaining, it's so cold out, you know, the the traffic. And here I am drinking with one of these guys who's got one arm, he's got a hook for another arm, and he's drinking a f***ing beer, having a laugh with me, and he's not bitching about nothing. I present to you the recipient of this year's VFW Americanism Award, Mrs. Scott Lavedo. That's it. I want to paint a flag on a rooftop in every state near a military base. There's a veteran. We all fought for that flag in World War II. And today we want to see it flying. They will never, as long as I am alive, they will never take the American flag down. You want to burn one? Then I will find out where you work 
and I will find the building across the street and paint a flag 50 by 100 so you have to see it every f***ing day. A pro-Trump sign on the front lawn of the Staten Island home was burned to the ground. The hate I get is astronomical. If everybody liked me, I'd be doing something wrong. My mother's advice, whatever you do with your life, as long as you believe it in your heart and always take care of those less fortunate. My father's advice was, son, take from nobody. This is about control and division. We must unite. We must take a stand. Are you ready? Live, 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 right, live. God didn't give me a gun and a bayonet. He gave me paint and brush, and I will fight to the f***ing death for this country. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. That, of course, is Neil Diamond and what most people would think is his most patriotic song. Uh, Neil Diamond uh, featured in a new Broadway musical, which is just getting rave reviews. I haven't seen it yet, but a whole bunch of people that I have spoken to have said it's terrific. And it fits with our theme for the hour because we're joined in studio by uh, Scott Lebedo, a patriotic artist and activist. And Chris Martini, the director of a new documentary, which you'll soon be able to see, called The Relentless Patriot. And you just heard the trailer from it. You could see the trailer at scottlebedo.com. Chris, um, thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, Scott, um, how did you and Scott uh, get together? Were you aware of Scott's work prior to you beginning to work on this documentary? So I, you know, I was making films, uh, my whole life and, you know, during, during the pandemic, uh, I had to shut down my business and my, my landlord, who's a conservative, uh, said you should interview Scott Lebedo cause I was working on a documentary series that I wanted to shoot. Uh, you know, I was pr- profoundly disturbed by the riots, the George Floyd riots, just seeing our country dest- destroyed. And, you know, so I interviewed Scott it was ended up being a three-hour interview, and during that interview, I realized, you know, all the things that Scott's been protesting for over the years, like 30 years, you know, w- was in complete alignment with the things that I'm concerned about. You know, like, I, I've done a lot of work on my with my films uh, on veterans, and, you know, this, this film got me to expand into law enforcement because, you know, I found... I was profoundly disturbed by the attacks on our law enforcement, but there's also, you know, the attack on Christian Christianity, 
Um, you know, Scott's protested for all these things, the, the Pledge of the, the Allegiance, Pledge of Allegiance, standing up for our flag, um, just standing up for America in general. So th- through him, I was able to tackle all these subjects that I cared deeply about. And, you know, I've, I've, I knew that once I made this film with Scott, I would be taking a new road in my career, you know, as, as a conservative. So it was a very uh, scary thing for me to do. But all my, all my work with veterans taught me one thing, that, you know, they fought and, and got maimed and many lost their lives so that we could have our freedom of, mm. of speech, you know. And, and for me, working in, in Hollywood, you know, I always felt something was off. I felt there was, you know, I felt ashamed for, you know, loving my country. And when I made these films about veterans, I was saying, hey, look, look what they go through. And often I found that nobody cared. So um, unlike Scott, you were involved in sort of the public eye at a relatively young age. You started out as a child actor, right? I, I was. My stepfather, who just passed away, was Angel Sorry. on the Rockford Files. And he won uh, two Emmy Awards. So I come from a film fam- family. My my brother Max is an actor. He was in one of the best war pictures of all time, Saving Private Ryan. That's right. right? Yeah. His first film was Contact, uh, which I shot the audition tape for. And then he went on to do Saving Private Ryan and all these other, uh, you know. And then so during that time, my brother and I were both doing this, these movies. I made a movie called Trooper about an Iraq veteran, and that's sort of what started this whole process for me. Uh, same question I asked to Scott earlier. Were you always a conservative? You know, it, it started with 9-11. Something happened to me during 9-11, and that's why I made Trooper. And I made Trooper to show, you know, what our veterans go through when they come home dealing with, you know, physical and mental injuries and, you know, battling the VA. And, you know, that, that film taught me so much about our country. And what I realized was that, you know, people love to say they support veterans, but do they really support veterans? And, you know, there's always this distaste, you know, and that film got very close to changing my life and changing my career. Trooper. Trooper. Wow. It got very close to getting into Sundance and Tribeca. I was talking with the programmers and, you know, it had its flaws, but I think that it was just a little bit too patriotic for them. Uh, Tell me about, um, do you, one of the things I've spoken with uh, a lot of Robert Davi, for instance, and a number of other people who are unabashed conservatives. And uh, Robert Davi has said that he believes the fact that he was conservative has absolutely hurt him in in Hollywood over the years. Not maybe not so much now because there's this whole kind of conservative uh, backlash to elitism or uh, liberal Hollywood or whatever you want to call it. But he believes that he's been hurt by the fact that he's been so outspoken about conservatism, and he wouldn't have been hurt had he been so outspoken about um, you know the being outwardly left wing. Do you find that you've been hurt by being conservative in a field that's not exactly known for be for showcasing conservatism? Well, you know, again, the riots is what made me want to vocalize myself. That's the first time that I started vocalizing myself because I just can't sit back and watch this happen to my country, you know. And so when when I when I met Scott, you know, so it's all I'm I'm in the middle of it right now. I don't really know what's going to happen. 
you know, but all I know is that, you know, my, my father was a sculptor from Rome and he was, you know, kind of blacklisted from the art community also. So it's probably another reason mm. why I wanted to do this documentary on Scott. So, uh, we're talking with Chris Martini and Scott Lebedo. Uh We're going to tell you how you will soon be able to see the uh, documentary that uh, the, t- the two of these gentlemen have collaborated on, The Relentless Patriot. You can see the trailer for now at uh, scottlebedo.com. Tell me about the production of the documentary. How long did you how long did you guys film for? How much of Scott's life did you chronicle in in documenting this, you know, documentary? So, you know, I've I've done a lot of editing working as a as a union editor also, you know, in addition to directing and producing my own films and and I actually don't enjoy editing at all and Scott gave me a suitcase full of, you know, 30 years of of you know, VHS tapes VHS and all this stuff that, you know, I was like, I, I promised myself I would never do this again. <laughs> but, you know, and, and, and I ended up filming Scott for three years. And I have to admit, you know, it it it, it satisfied Three me. years about. Three years following him around with the camera. But I really enjoyed it because, the, you know, Scott is speaking about things that are happening right now. Like my father, the sculptor always told me to be contemporary in my art and to deal. And sometimes politics are the, the only way to be contemporary, you know? And so he was, you know, he was protesting. I was filming him. I filmed him in front of the DA office, pouring blood all over the street. You know, this was at a time when, you know, my property in Dallas was getting vandalized and the cops couldn't arrest people, you know? So this is like, Mm. this is about stuff that we're all that I'm experiencing that we're all experiencing. So, you know, it, it, it helped, you know, help push me through this, you know, and Scott's just fun to hang out with. I and I love it. driving around this city with the giant, we, the people flag. Yeah, and especially getting if all it's, the uh, it's blaring the patriotic music uh, loudly for uh, people on the Upper East Side to hear. That's always fun. Um, tell me, you know, as you alluded to, you know, I, I've hung out with Scott a bit and uh, spent a great deal of time on radio and television with him over the years. He's a wild man. He's he's out of his mind. What surprised you most about doing this documentary or about spending so much time with this guy for three years? Is Scott's a really good human being. You know, I, I, he he's already shown his loyalty to me personally. So, you know, that that helps. You know, I've I've. I come from a family of artists. I know artists well. I know how artists behave. And so, you know, but... But you'll never do this again with me. No, just one. <laughs> okay, let's get that out. I can imagine. So uh, here's the million-dollar question. Are people able to see this documentary now? If not, when will they be able to see it and how? Chris? So, you know, the reality is that making a film that deals with this subject matter, we are the underdog and it's going to be, you know, quite a push to get this scene. You know, there's a lot of people that don't want this kind of subject matter available. It gives them a bad taste and, you know, and so we're, but we're already getting offers. You know, we've, we've had, you know, people contact, contact us out of the blue. But the film's done though, right? The film is, the film is finished. We have a trailer. If you go to my YouTube page, Christopher Martini, and just put in YouTube, the relentless Patriot trailer, you know, share the trailer, you know, like it, subscribe. And that, you know, that's how we're going to get the best offer. That's, that's the way that, you know, I believe 
it might get in the right hands. We actually have just signed on a great producer who has relationships at all the networks. So we're hoping that, that somebody takes a chance on this film. They look at their numbers and they realize that, you know, half or more than half of the country, you know, is is wanting films about this kind of stuff. Nobody is making films for them. I, I just uh, also just linked to it on my Facebook page. If people want to see the trailer, it's at Facebook.com slash Morano fan. I see uh, that you got my friend Curtis Lee in the trailer. It must have been tough to get Curtis to agree to appear on camera, right? He's usually no, very was... shy and reserved and doesn't oh, like oh, to. Oh, okay, uh, you're being sarcastic. He's like, like telling me the same seen. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, when, when Chris says, you know, we're looking for the best kind of offer, it's not about money. We're not. If, I, if it was about money, I would have been a rich man a long time ago. And Chris, you know, Chris agreed. I did something that wasn't easy and because it was right. And Chris is doing the same thing. He's putting his life on the line, his career. We've pumped in so much money into this of our own money. And this is a battle cry. This movie is a battle cry. It's not an egotistical movie. Yeah, I'm a middle child. I like to be the center of attention and let people see my paintings and my expressions. But it's it's a battle cry. And it's, it's, it's just the timing is just right now to wake people up. I scream every day on my Instagram, people to wake up quickly in a nutshell. This, you know, Newsmax just got shut, you know, AT&T and, and DirecTV just squashed them. Like, what, 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 do you actually believe this is happening in this country right now? And who do I blame? I yell at the people that say that they are soldiers in this fight. You have to boycott things like that. You have to call up and say, I am not going to participate in your company for doing something so un-American. And, like you know, I know you a long time, Scott. I, I think if it were a left-wing network that were being banned, uh, I think you'd be just as vocal Absolutely. in terms of uh, that kind of corporate censorship. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it's funny. You, uh, you know, I was a producer for uh, the Netflix documentary Get Me, Roger Stone, and that's a documentary that I think that you can enjoy whether you're, you like Trump, whether you don't like Trump. And Dan Rather, who obviously doesn't like Trump and doesn't like uh, Roger Stone, became a big backer of the film. And one of the things he said was that um, this was really just such a great story. And if you are rooting for Stone, if you're rooting for Trump or you're rooting against them, you could still get a lot out of the documentary. My question for both of you is, let's say someone's not conservative. Let's say they're, you know, totally left wing or they're apolitical, right, which some people still are nowadays. Can you still get something out of The Relentless Patriot? Can you enjoy the film if you don't share Scott's politics or your politics? Absolutely. So, you know, the the trailer that you just heard was sort of the conservative, you know, all bringing out all our guns, you know, look <laughs> at me trailer, you know, but – when you at, when you watch the actual film, my father again, the sculptor, taught me about dialectics. You have to show the other side, and that's the basis of drama is conflict. You know, so we don't want everybody to agree with Scott. You know, so we I interview a lot of people that don't agree with Scott. So you get the other side, and I I think that a lot of people are going to be interested in watching this film. Um, for many different reasons. There will be people that want to see how Scott survived in the art world as a conservative. I mean, that's that's very interesting also, you know, but there are people that... And the art itself is just very sound. I mean, yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, if even if they're watching it because they don't like Scott and they want to see him fail or they want to criticize it or whatever, I think when you go through... The actual film, you'll see that we've shown, 
you know, that we've told a really good story, as you said, and that, you know, we as conservatives are empathetic people and that we're, we have good intentions and we have a lot of love. And that's what I think comes through. This there there is a unifying aspect, believe it or not, at the end of the film that kind of says, well, how we can kind of get together and fix this. Great. Although it's raw and hard coming from me, you'll understand how he, the, the magic man, the director, how he created to say, okay, this guy's out of his mind. He's a conservative, blah, blah, blah. But I see his point where he's, you know, primitively using his art to try to bring us together again. You know, part part of like where we have to come as a nation is that we have to truly see each other's sides. And I think that in the film industry, you see the other side, you know, everywhere. Nobody sees our side. You know, and that's that's part of, of our of their evolution as as well as it is ours. But when you when you watch this movie, you'll you know, we take you on a journey to show that we're not all these things that they accuse us of. You know, if people just tuning in, we're talking with Scott Lebedo and Chris Martini. By the way, if you have an art lover in your life and especially if they happen to be uh, conservative or very patriotic, there's a lot of great artwork that you can uh, purchase at scottlebedo.com. And you can even get a uh, signed copy of Scott's uh, flag art book, which uh, you were kind enough to just give me a copy. And I love the inscription to Frank Morano, the smartest guy I know, which tells me you may know less than a dozen people, but uh, I appreciate it very. I appreciate it uh, nonetheless. Uh, and by the way, your your mom was a big listener of mine. Obviously, before she passed away, she didn't exactly share your politics either. No, and she loved what you were doing. So it is possible you do have fans across the political spectrum. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. All right, many, many, many. And my mother, yes, she was your biggest fan, and I was shocked. She not was, that you were a conservative, you know, you're middle of the road, but for her... Well, I think be, she uh, appreciated... She was old school. And she also was uh, a night owl, right? She she uh, she kept late hours, which yes. I like. Um, but uh, do check out scottlebedo.com. I want to pick your brain, both of you, on a few issues that are in the news. Uh, but one issue not related to current events uh, directly, but sort of related to it, is the issue of AI art. A lot of people are concerned about this, right? Uh, that you can now go to a, a one of a hundred different apps, type in a text prompt, and uh, you say, give me an American flag in the style of Scott Lebedo, and it produces in seconds – uh, a piece of art generated by a computer. A lot of artists are frustrated about this. There's a lawsuit now about this. Where do you come down on the issue of AI art? Uh, I'm As an artist, I'm fine with it. I mean, look, the computer started this a long time ago. It took away, you know, the printing. I mean, you can go back to when they started doing printing on paper, mm-hmm. reproducing someone's artwork. You know, we do it all the time now. I have lithographs. I have limited edition prints. This is just another aspect of that. And as an artist that gets physically dirty and gets covered in paint, that will never would this AI art would never ever ever compare to this. You know, it's just the new coming of age, but it's just like anything else. You're it's not frightened be, at no, all about no, this. No, all right, no. good. Uh, Somebody's love to always going to want an original, tangible, smell that oil paint original canvas. And you can get it at scottlebedo.com. We're going to continue with Scott Lebedo and Chris Martini in a moment. I want to pick uh, Scott's brain about uh, the highest profile person to be banned from Facebook 
He's back, also back on Instagram. And there was a lot of controversy over the uh, the blue line flag being prohibited in Los Angeles. Scott's had some involvement in that, and I'll pick both Scott and Chris's brain on a few different issues that are in the news. If you want to call in, we'll try and get to as many of your calls as possible, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Uh, I tell you, I don't know uh, how many people are held on a pedestal by both uh, Al Sharpton and Donald Trump. And I think James Brown happens to be one. A terrific, terrific song and very apropos of the conversation that we're having with uh, Scott Lebedo, longtime artist, conservative activist. And uh, he is the subject of the new documentary, The Relentless Artist. You can check out Scott's artwork and see the documentary to the trailer at scottlobedo.com. That's L-O-B-A. IDO.com. I've just also linked to it on uh, my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. And Chris Martini is the director of that documentary. He's a veteran of the uh, motion picture and entertainment business as well. And it's good to have both of you here. Um, before we uh, run out of time, and, you know, let me, Sean has been holding a while. Sean in Brooklyn, you're on with uh, Scott Lebedo and uh, Chris Martini. Uh, what's on your mind, Sean? Love you. You and Dominic need to start, start your own TV show called Let's Keep It Real. <laughs> Thanks. Is I appreciate Cuomo? it. Cuomo with his new show? Uh, Chris Cuomo with his new show or Andrew? No, Chris. Uh, of course. I, I saw the first episode. I thought I was very <laughs> fair in my, my critique. He He's no longer a liberal. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Shocking. It's amazing how that happens. It's a, but Sean, real, real quick, anyway, Sean, I, I, I want to get to some other folks. What, what's on your mind? What, what do you have for these guys? You're talking about art. I grew up in Brooklyn. You see, I have, obviously, uh, you can tell. Uh, but you're talking, see, it's, a, it's subjective. The guy who, you know, is painting, you know, whatever he's painting, oh, of course it's art. But if I come and spray paint my name across Frank Morano's front door, is that art, Frank? That's that's vandalism. Yeah, certainly not. I think that's something. I think that's something we can all agree yeah, on, right? I, I agree. Mean, as um, an artist, I agree. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, vandalism is something that I don't think anybody, you know, wherever they fall politically or wherever they fall in terms of their art preferences, nobody's got a tolerance uh, for that. The thin blue line artwork that you've done is something that a lot of people are looking at anew because of what's going on in Los Angeles. If people didn't hear my conversation about this earlier in the week. The police chief in Los Angeles is prohibiting uh, officers with the LAPD 
from uh, displaying a a blue line flag on their vehicles, their police vehicles, or on their uniforms because they say that this symbol has become uh, – I I don't even understand uh, the rationale for it, quite frankly. You did something similar in front of a police precinct here in New York. You painted a thin blue line. Why? What was the motivation behind that, Scott? What were you trying to do or what statement were you trying to make? I've always used my artwork to support the police department over the last several decades, but of late, as we all know, the last seven, eight years, including now, the police department has been humiliated, degraded, just demoralized to no end. And we all know police officers. We live in Staten Island. The majority of people on that island are civil servants, and we know them personally. We know that they are human beings. They have wives that cheat on them. They have children that are dying of cancer. They have a father who's has dementia, they're human beings, and to see them demoralized constantly, specifically by the leaders of this great city, like de Blasio, who I don't even want to mention his name. When he put those Black Lives Matter murals down, as an artist, we just had this conversation, I actually thought it was pretty clever art. But he had to have a permit to do that. De Blasio did not have a permit. So it was constantly building the demoralization of these police department and it was horrible. So what does the blue line represent? It represents, it honors and remembers those who lost their lives in a line of duty, period. It does not have anything to do with racism or anti-anything. It sickens me. So I painted a 1,000-foot-long blue line right down the middle of Highland Boulevard in front of the precinct. And the next day I get a letter from the city saying, cease and desist, remove this blue line or you will be fined and jailed. And I refused, and I went up against him in the media, and I said, de Blasio, you show me your permit that you had to do the Black Lives Matter, then I will take this blue line up. And two days later, he came out and he said, I did not have a permit. So that blue line is still there two and a half years later, and it will be there to the day I die. I, I pass it every day. And so what are the rules regarding public art now, especially when it comes to things that might involve some sort of an a, some sort of activism? Now, I remember uh, the president of our radio network, uh, Chad Lopez, he said to me when they put up those Black Lives Matter murals, he said, can I go and just paint a giant Hispanic Lives Matter, um, you know, mural in the middle of the street? What with rules, a permit. But... So, but you and de Blasio both didn't have a permit for your artwork, right? Well, that's why I got away with it. Right. The so city can... just left me alone. <laughs> there was nothing. They left me alone. My lawyers, you know, I think it was Mark Fonte at the time, uh, uh, Lou Geromino, yeah. they were like, no, man, you're right. This is you. He didn't have a permit, and this is the new can of worms opened up. If you think about it through the riots that Chris was talking about, right. they used spray paint, permanent paint to destroy beautiful historic buildings. And they have it all on film. And not one of those punks got a summons or anything. And they're on film doing it. But yet they wanted to take me down because I painted a blue line just Yeah, it is great to see when I drive uh, past it uh, every day. It's it's really wonderful. Um, I I alluded to this earlier. The decision came about uh, seven hours ago that Meta was restoring uh, President Trump to both uh, Facebook and Instagram after about a two-year hiatus following the January 6th uh, riot. What's your take on what uh, what Facebook and Meta and uh, Instagram are doing well, here? Well, I went up against Trump. Facebook in front of the headquarters and pulled one of my stunts because they they squashed me as well. We have, excuse me, we have known terrorists that have their social media platforms and the president of the United States 
is taken down because of people are so sensitive and woke. It's just, it blows your mind. It just blows your mind. It blows your mind. It just, I'm pissed off that people don't understand how bad this is right now, that we just let this stuff happen and we keep paying these companies that do this stuff to us. It blows my mind. Uh, Chris, any take on uh, these social media companies? Now Trump's back on Twitter, back on Facebook, back on Instagram. And the the rumor is this week, and who knows what's accurate, but that he's reluctant to uh, re-up his exclusive content deal with Truth Social, which is the uh, social media network that he founded as sort of an alternative to a lot of the censorship on the other platforms. What does this mean, you think, going forward for free speech, for social media and for Donald Trump? Well, you know, since since I made this film and I put out this trailer, all I can tell you is is that, you know, a, a lot of my liberal fil- friends have left me, you know, but many are still there. And I, I can say that sharing this trailer, you know, people were getting odd messages, you know, accounts, you know, like disinformation. That's never happened to me. I mean – I come from a film family, you know, we've established ourselves in the business. That's never ever happened to me until now. And so, you know, I but I, I think that conservatives need to stay on these platforms. They need to stay on Facebook and you know, Instagram and and as well as the conservative platforms to just not give up. I mean, we we need a, a voice, and you know, we we can't just let them win. And, you know? and one of the things that I said uh, when Elon Musk took over Twitter, and a lot of conservatives ended up coming back to it, and you saw liberals abandon Twitter and go to other platforms like uh, Mastodon or other similar things. I said that liberals should stay on Twitter as well because I personally feel it's healthy to have sort of a digital town square where people of varying political persuasions could interact with one another. I don't think it's healthy for, you know, um, Twitter to be seen as Fox News and Facebook to be seen as MSNBC. Agreed, but it should have been that way. It stopped before the social media aspect, the the interaction in the in the bars and the taverns. We always had that. I was always right. the I was always the conservative at the Cargo Cafe. Sure. A liberal bastion and we got along. We 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 disagreed, but we got along. So, what do you think changed, and when did it change? The leaders of the left movements went too far left. That is the answer I tell everybody. We are a country that balance. We go in the seventies and sixties. We were a little more liberal, not too much, and then in the eighties we were a little conservative. We always fluctuate, but the left took this to the bleeping stratosphere, and you cannot do that because you woke up the sleeping giant. And now it's a clash. Now it's a clash. The only way to fix this is that the left has to pull those reins back. We're, we're talking with uh, Scott Lebedo and Chris Martini. Uh, you could see their work in The Relentless Patriot. The best way, if people want to uh, keep up to date with when they'll be able to see The Relentless Patriot on a streaming network or somewhere else, is what? Is it? Is it to uh, go to the trailer website or do something else? What's the best way for them to make sure that they don't miss this when it is available? And obviously we'll have Scott you guys back. com. Uh, my Instagram, triple martini prod, one word. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be posting everything there. Scott, uh, one of the things that I mentioned was you were really seen as kind of um, not just a New York hero, but kind of a patriotic hero for the creative way that you painted flags. Uh, I think 
whether it was you who said it yourself or others, you were seen as somebody that was making patriotism cool again, not necessarily stodgy and your grandfather's variety of flag waving. Um, Then when you became a little bit more outspoken in your artwork, when you'd uh, do things like showing a show, uh, a painting of uh, President Biden without a head and hands or uh, show, um, you know, uh, Bill de Blasio with, uh, you know, a a jackass and, uh, you know, a heap of dung, for instance. People said that that you were kind of damaging your own brand, which was focused on patriotism and engaging in, I don't know, um, sophomoric meme style artwork, which was beneath you. What would you say to those folks, Scott? Uh, I, I love the criticism. You learn to love criticism. I am an artist and some artists provoke one emotion, whether it's a landscape to soothe you in that moment. But there's other artists like myself who provoke the various emotions. I will have you calm when I do something, a memorial tribute, and then I will have you nuts with something I do politically that you don't agree with. Art is to provoke emotion, and what I do is not always pretty. It's not supposed to be pretty. You can call it sophomore. I mean, the art world has called me a jingoist, a Nazi for painting the flags. So the criticism to me, I am an artist, and I paint what I feel, and I paint what people want to say. I say it with my voice a lot, but I also use the canvas, and it's not always pretty. And sometimes it is very amateur and sophomoric because it is just a message. It's a quick one. I don't have two months to do right. this beautiful, you know, th- sometimes it's just a stick figure kind of thing, and it's bam, but the message is there. Pow. Have you gotten involved in the whole NFT movement at all? Is there a way for me to buy a Scott Lebedo NFT? I tried it. I tried it out. We tried it, and apparently the NFT thing just took a little dive and it disappeared so it's not your thing no i mean i tried it i said i still have something floating around but uh it's just you know it's just uh, just trying to get keep up with everybody else and do something different give people another small cheap option to get something you know like i said earlier it's not my thing but you know uh, any always... thoughts on what Trump did with the NFT trading cards, either from a, a branding point of view or how you thought they looked or any thoughts at all? No, I got no opinion. No opinion. No. Um, if you go to scottlebedo.com and uh, if people do want to buy uh, some of your artwork, can they actually commission you to do something unique for them? Yes, yes. I take commissions. I have uh, signed prints on my website, signed canvas prints. But, uh, yeah, I get uh, – commissions people to say oh, i want this i want that you know sometimes it's not cheap well gotta make a living we got a movie Naturally. to make right hey uh, believe me I, I absolutely get it all right you can check it all out at uh, scottlebedo.com you can also uh see the trailer on my facebook page facebook.com slash morano fan or you can go to chris martini's instagram page uh, or you can just search on the youtube chris uh, martini and a, a whole world opens up gentlemen this has been a lot of fun thank you Awesome. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Thank Frank. You. And when the movie's out, you got to come back. We'll, um, you know, maybe oh, yeah, we'll, we we'll do the show from the screening. If you do a, a big screening, maybe we'll have some tickets to give away. We'll do something fun. So, we love that. Uh, Scott Lebe. And I want to thank you for this book. And if, I do recommend if people want to check out Old Glory Through the Eyes of Scott Lebedo. It's a beautiful 8x10 book. It makes a great coffee table book. You can actually see the rooftops of American flags that uh, Scott's painted in uh, in Texas and in uh, all over the country and it's really uh, beautiful and pretty inspiring and even if um, even if you're not an American I know we have a lot of Canadian listeners and French and people listening all over the world the quality of the artwork is uh, absolutely superb it's uh, old glory through the eyes of Scott Lebedo you can check it out on Scott's website thank you gentlemen
Thank you, Frank. Always a pleasure, brother. If you want to comment on any portion of my conversation with Scott Lebedo and Chris Martini, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Coming up in a moment, uh, one of the most influential columnists in American history has called it quits. I'll give you my take. A little bit later, we'll go live to Atlantic City for the AC Report. And Brian Kilmeade will give us his thoughts on the news of the day. A lot of show to get to for the next three hours. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Yesterday, I broke the news to you. I mean, I'm sure it was welcome news to some of you that uh, Patrick J. Buchanan, one of the most influential and widely read columnists in this country over the course of the last half century, decided to retire. And I said yesterday, I played for you what uh, Chris Matthews said on MSNBC when Pat was fired from MSNBC in 2012. And I agree with every word Chris Matthews said there. And I thought it was a brilliant commentary that he that he put together. And I enjoyed a lot of the clips that he played. I'm not going to play it for you again now. But if you didn't get to hear us talking about that yesterday, you can go to my Facebook page. It's on there, facebook.com slash Morano fan. He has retired. Pat Buchanan, three-time presidential candidate, advisor to three presidents, Nixon, Ford, and Reagan, uh, and uh, somebody that has had an incredible influence on shaping the country as it is today. He has retired from his syndicated column. And it's so interesting to me that so many of the things that he warned about, whether it's reckless free trade, whether it's uh, cultural issues, whether it's uh, getting involved in foreign wars, that these have all come to fruition. And in a lot of the way, a lot of ways, the sort of center-right populist fervor that he stoked 30, 40, 50 years ago, it did really lay the groundwork for Donald Trump. I mean, I think these days, um, people look at his speech at the 1992 Republican convention and uh, look at it as the beginning of a new era in populist conservatism. You remember that speech, right? P- he, Pat was heavily criticized for it. George H.W. Bush. Now, remember what was going on in 1992. A lot of conservatives wanted an alternative to George H.W. Bush. They were upset with him for raising taxes, which at the time was the largest tax increase in American history. A lot of conservatives were upset with him for the Gulf War. And a lot of uh, a lot of people were upset with him for a variety of other reasons. His handling of the uh, Iran Contra affair, along with Reagan, a number of other issues that people took issue with. I don't want to relitigate the politics of 1992, but a lot of folks were looking for a, a lot of people upset with his advocacy for NAFTA and free trade. A lot of conservatives were looking for an alternative, and they found one in Pat Buchanan. Now think of that, Pat Buchanan, who was a friend of George Bush, going back years, knew George Bush going back to the 70s, maybe even the 60s. He 
took the mantle of the center-right, actually nothing center about it, the right-leaning opposition to George H.W. Bush. And he gave George H.W. Bush a sitting incumbent president, quite a scare. He got about 36% of the vote in the New Hampshire primary against the sitting president, which was unheard of at the time. So George Bush and the Republican Party realized, whoa, wait a minute. There is something to this Pat Buchanan's appeal. And we better give him a speaking spot at our convention. And they did. And 30 years later, to this day, people still debate whether it was the right move for the Republicans to allow Pat Buchanan on television and prime time to say speeches, a speech that was fiery, that included lines like this. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war as critical to the kind of nation we shall be as the Cold War itself. For this war is for the soul of America. And in that struggle for the soul of America, Clinton and Clinton are on the other side, and George Bush is on our side. Now, I was really only involved in one election in which Pat uh, ran in, and that was the 2000 election, and I... Uh, worked against him. I was not for him. I've regretted that. I uh, because I look at the things that he was warning about in the '90s and in 2000, and I think, uh, my goodness, had we gone down a Pat Buchanan-esque path, this country would have been in a much better place. And um, one of the things and I've gotten to know Pat a bit over the years, and I like Pat very much. The esteem that I have for him as an intellectual is only exceeded by the esteem that I have for him as a person. And I don't know him well. We've never uh, gone out to dinner or anything. Uh, We've met in person a a handful of times. Um, We were trying to make arrangements to go out to dinner, and then the coronavirus pandemics shut the whole world down. I'm going to try and go out and see him uh, sometime soon. But um, I've always been so impressed with Pat's character. And that 1992 election is a perfect example of that. In 1992, keep in mind, any other politician would have tried to score points with the right wing, which was Pat's whole base, his only strategy to maybe getting the nomination, any way they could. Not Pat Buchanan. For instance, George H.W. Bush had always been pro-choice until 1980 when Ronald Reagan and Reagan's team calls Bush up and says, you want to be on the ticket? Well, if you do... Right now, you better become pro-life. And George H.W. Bush switched, instantly became pro-life. His wife, Barbara Bush, remained pro-choice. And I think, um, you know, Bush's brother, who was active in politics at the time, Bush's brother, remained pro-choice. But Bush himself switched. Now, if you're Pat Buchanan and you're running uh, on a total social conservative platform, pro-life, anti-abortion as could be, wouldn't you use that? Buchanan, to his credit, did not. He never brought up the issue of abortion, uh, other than to say he was a a champion for the unborn. He never criticized Bush for having been pro-choice. And I'd ask him about that in private as well. And I'd heard other interviews, and he's written about it in his books, and I've read all of his books. And he said, it wouldn't be fair for me to do that because as president, whatever his personal beliefs were, they were. But as president, he governed like a pro-life president. So how could I criticize him on that when legislatively and in terms of picks that he tried to make to the Supreme Court, they were the kind of picks that I would make. 
And I, I thought that was a very principled position. Now, I know we have a lot of younger listeners, and uh, they may not be familiar with the heyday of Pat Buchanan's political career or his media career, which goes back to the 1960s. And they might be wondering, how did he get started? Where did he come from? How did somebody who was born in Washington, D.C., who came from a Democratic family, how did he come to symbolize the voice of the fiery populist right? Well, he was on C-SPAN, I think, in 1988, promoting his book right from the beginning, which is a wonderful book. I, I don't know that I could pick a favorite of Pat Buchanan's books, but if I had to pick one that can sum up who Pat is and how he came to be, it's right from the beginning. And it's kind of a triple pun. It's right from the beginning because, in his view, he's correct, so he's right. It's right from the beginning because he's conservative, and it's right from the beginning because it starts at the beginning of his life. It's very clever, the whole book. And he talked in this interview on C-SPAN that he was doing promoting the book about how he became a conservative. I started to think back on why I believed as I did, why I was different than other individuals in terms of what I felt and thought and argued. And so I decided to, uh, to think back and try to find out the sources of my own beliefs. And when I did, I found very quickly, I went right through the fact that I'd read a lot of conservative books when I was an editorial writer, or James Burnham, or even Buckley's Magazine and the rest of it. And I found out that I'd been a conservative when I came to those publications. In other words, you picked them up and you agreed with what you were reading. And so I had to go back further, and you sort of went back into your roots. And I guess I sort of picked it up by osmosis and sort of accepted a lot of things I were taught, which were conservative and traditionalist, and came to affirm and accept those values and beliefs. Now, 1992 was just the beginning of Pat's foray into presidential politics. Because keep in mind what was going on in Pat's life at the time, right? Or where he was in his life at the time. He was Nixon's senior aide. He was probably the only guy in the Nixon administration that was with him from the very beginning of the campaign until Nixon's last day in office. And then he stayed and worked in the Ford administration as well. Then um, Reagan brought him back as communications director, and he had an eyewitness vantage point for some of the most significant newsworthy events of the 1980s, including the Challenger explosion. I mean, imagine – Being an eyewitness to presidential history under everything that happened in the Nixon era, under everything that happened or many things that happened in the Ford era, his chief of staff, uh, Dick Cheney, was pretty eager to get Pat Buchanan out, as you might imagine, and uh, through many of the things that happened in the Reagan era. So 1992, he gives a sitting president quite a scare. 1996, there's no Republican incumbent. So it's a wide open field. Bob Dole, it was sort of perceived that it was his turn, but a lot of people were inspired by Pat. Pat does even better in 1996. He doesn't just get 36% of the vote in New Hampshire. He wins New Hampshire and gives uh, gives Bob Dole and Phil Graham and the Republican establishment quite a run for his money when he's running for president, seeking the Republican nomination in 1996. You see the Bill Clinton State of the Union? This character, Imus, Imus in the morning guy, I'd heard said, Bill Clinton gave a great speech. I think Pat Buchanan wrote it. Look, here's a guy who's going to take over the entire health care system with the misses, 15% of the economy, and put it under big government. And he's up there saying in the State of the Union, the era of big government is over. Clinton 96 is running against Clinton 93. It's a great debate. That isn't all what he's talking about. He's now talking about 
We got to do something about illegal immigration in this country. Got to crack down. He's building a fence along the border. Buchanan Clinton fence along the border. I'm not kidding. They got a border defense going up, these guys. He also said, we got to get prayer now back in the public schools. This is Bill Clinton. This guy is shameless. You know, as I said, you know, he moves from one position to another, depending on this, this, this guru he's got. In the polls, in the focus groups, he's like a blind dog in a meat market. Just going from one to the other to the other. And I think Pat made a very good point there, and so did I miss, which is that Pat's commentary and his columns and the work that he did as a speechwriter under both Nixon and Reagan, it really did influence not just the Republican Party, but the mainstream of American politics, including Bill Clinton. Do you remember how conservative uh, Clinton became in the mid-90s? When there was a Republican Congress and he had to find a way to get uh, credit for what Newt Gingrich was passing in Congress, they called it uh, triangulation. It was a Dick Morris strategy. And a lot of what Pat said was right. He did very well in 96. Not enough to win. And unlike 92, Bob Dole, uh, by the way, uh, Pat had told me many times over the years that he was a little disappointed that after New Hampshire, Alan Keyes and Bob Dornan and the other social conservatives stayed in the race because it made it very difficult for him to win because a lot of the social conservative uh, vote was uh, was split. And um, one of the things that occurred in 1996 is the Republican establishment said, we are not going to allow Pat Buchanan to uh, speak at our convention. We are absolutely not going to allow him to do the same thing in 96 and portray our candidate, Bob Dole, as a tool of right-wing extremists the way they were able to do with George H.W. Bush. So they didn't let him speak in 96. They gave his speaking spot to Christine Todd Whitman. And that that made – by the way, the last thing I'll mention about his 92 candidacy um, – So many people, and we'll get back to this in a second, so many people have sought to portray Pat Buchanan as a racist over the years. He's not a racist. So many people have sought to portray Pat Buchanan as an anti-Semite over the years. He's not an anti-Semite. And one of the things that Pat did in 1992, people forget, you know who else was running for president in 1992 uh, other than George Bush and Ross Perot and Bill Clinton? David Duke. David Duke, the former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, was running for president against Pat Buchanan. And um, he repudiated David Duke everywhere he went. In fact, the kind of repudiation that he gave against David Duke is something I would have liked to have heard a little bit more from Donald Trump years later. Um, In fact, David Duke tried to come up to him one time uh, when they were both campaigning and shake his hand. Buchanan refused to shake his hand and just said, goodbye, David. That was the only words he said. Goodbye, David. 1996, Buchanan's insulted and his supporters are insulted. He runs again. 2000, open seat, and it's clear the Republicans are rigging this whole process for George W. Bush, the son of Pat's 1992 nemesis, and Pat sees no path for him to get the Republican nomination. He chooses to leave the GOP and run and seek the nomination of the Reform Party in the year 2000. Now, seriously, friends... Neither Beltway Party is going to drain this swamp because to them it isn't a swamp. It's a protected wetland and their natural habitat. (laughs) They swim in it. They feed in it. They spawn in it. 
It's so interesting. That's the year 2000. Who did that sound like so many years later? Well, I'll tell you one of the people it sounded like, Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump was who I supported in 2000 uh, when I was involved in the Reform Party. And ultimately, Trump chose not to run in 2000. And um, Trump was kind of considered within the Reform Party the centrist alternative to Pat Buchanan. People can't believe it now because Trump is seen as this right winger, but not back then he wasn't. He was for uh, soaking the rich in terms of taxes. He was very pro-choice. He was, uh, I think he was pro-gay marriage. He was pro-single-payer health care and was positioning himself as a centrist or center-left alternative to Pat Buchanan. And you know what Donald Trump does, right? Donald Trump killed Buchanan when they were both running for the Reform Party nomination together. Donald Trump, um, he repeated all these same Pat Buchanan stereotypes that you've heard a hundred times. He called him a Hitler lover. He said he doesn't like the blacks. He doesn't like the Jews. He is a representative of a right-wing wacko constituency. And it was so interesting to me that the very attacks that Trump made on Buchanan in 1999 and 2000 then were hurled at Trump 16 years later. It was so interesting to me how things come full circle that way. But 2011, uh, I had an opportunity to fill in on the radio at another radio station. I didn't have my own show or anything. And I was filling in for Curtis Lewa. And Pat was at the top of his game, best-selling author, widely read columnist, and he was hosting a show and a contributor on MSNBC. And I really wanted to make a splash with this first show. And I reached out to Pat and I said, Pat, Mr. Buchanan, I still call him Mr. Buchanan. Mr. Buchanan, you've got to help. I'm trying to make a splash. I'm trying to start a radio career. You know what it's like. And I really would love to have someone of your stature come on the show. And he made time in between MSNBC tapings to call in live at the time that I was on. And I said, all right, I'm going to make a big splash. I'm going to make a big news. This is 2011. Donald Trump is the leading Republican presidential candidate this time. And ultimately, he ended up not running in 2012. But he at that time was soaring in the polls. And I said, I'm going to make a big splash. I'm going to remind Pat about the things that Trump said about him 11, 12 years ago. And I'm going to get Pat to respond. And I know Pat. Pat's going to kill Trump. And I'm going to get a lot of attention and make a lot of news with Pat Buchanan responding to Donald Trump. Listen to what I said. I think this is my question included. And listen to Pat's response. Well, I think the, his message of economic patriotism uh, that, we, that the Chinese and these Asian countries are laughing at us while they eat our lunch, that resonates very well with Americans. And it resonates with Democ- uh, blue-collar Democrats, Reagan Democrats in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan. I think it's one of the reasons why Donald Trump is popular here, because he, people say the guy gets it. He's a tough guy. He knows what's being done to us. And he knows some of these foreign guys are taking us to the cleaners. And so I think that's one of the reasons he's doing well. Now, will he run? I don't know. I mean, we all know that he, he's get, he gets a lot of attention. He's uh, controversial. He says what he thinks. I think people like that. I don't know. He'll have to take a look at how well, I mean, poll society is doing extremely well. I mean, if based on polls, if I had poll numbers like that, I'd be in the race right now. <laughs> well, I, you know but, what? It, uh, but, it, but he's got to take a look at, see what he, what he will look like once he gets in, see. And a lot of folks, their, their, their top day is 
and the polls is when they get into the race. Yeah, no, I want to go down from there. Well, Fred Thompson, perfect example of that from uh, from 2008. But I want to ask you, back in 2000, you were the Reform Party nominee for president. A guy who flirted with getting in was Donald Trump. And in doing so, when he was in the midst of that flirtation, he was very critical of you, even giving interviews, uh, you know, really not on anything merited, but it, not on any policy issues, but it was personal. And he would say things like, uh, I guess he's an anti-Semite. He doesn't like the blacks. He doesn't like the Jews and not criticize you on anything substantive. Is he kind of doing that same thing now with Barack Obama? Uh, I don't know that he uh, he's not doing that. And and uh, he's been gracious to me since then. He's uh, so in other words, I, I've communicated with him and we put all that behind. us. Oh, well, that's I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, that's and uh, and so I think what he's saying about uh, Obama, I think everything I've heard about Obama, I mean, in and with one exception, <laughs> is within the realm of legitimate criticism. The exception now, being the say, birther issue, right? Well, the people say the birther issue. Now, I thought that was such a class act um, way, not for me, uh, but for him to handle that. I thought the fact that he chose not to respond in kind, but because he viewed what Trump was saying as the right message for the country and to say, look, we put all that behind us. I mean, if someone called me a Hitler lover, if someone said I didn't like the blacks and I didn't like the Jews, I'm liable to hold a grudge for more than 12 years. Not Pat Buchanan, because with Pat Buchanan... His philosophy, he was really, if I had to, uh, some people have described Pat as paleoconservative. Some people have described him as isolationist. I would describe Pat's life philosophy, forget about his political philosophy, his life philosophy as being Catholic. Everything that he did in life was guided by an old school pre-Vatican II Catholic ideology. And the hallmark of that was forgiveness. And forgiving and forgetting. And he always did. Uh, that was the first of many conversations that Pat and I have had over the on the radio over the course of the last 11 years. And I hope we can have a few more. But um, a lot of folks wonder, how did Pat Buchanan get a master's degree in journalism from Columbia University? Pat Buchanan, this socially conservative warrior. What was it like for him at Columbia? Pat, I learned more in talking with you for 10 minutes than I did in years of college and graduate school. I appreciate it a great deal. Where'd you go to school? <laughs> New York University. I know you were a Columbia man. I spent one year at Columbia. They didn't spot me until I got through. <laughs> um, a lot of Pat's legacy over the years has been negative. People have raised questions about what he said about World War II. Uh, a lot of people have raised questions about the things that he said about Israel. In a minute, I'm going to let you hear directly from him in some of the conversations that we've had over the years about what he thinks America's role in World War II was, and then you be the judge of whether he was right or whether he was wrong. This is The Other Side of Midnight. If you want to comment on Pat Buchanan's retirement, you can. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Although I will say... Whatever I could say, whatever I could, whatever you could say, it pales in comparison to the right on the money commentary that Chris Matthews did about Pat Buchanan in 2012. And if you want to see that, you can go to my Facebook page right now at facebook.com slash Morano fan. This is the other side of midnight straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
From the great Jean Knight, who is celebrating her 80th birthday today. An R&B and soul singer from New Orleans and a legend, Mr. Big Stuff. This song, which is over 50 years old, can you imagine? Is still, uh, it still resonates, still makes your foot tap just as well uh, today as it did in 1971. She's 80 years old today. Happy birthday, Jean Knight. We're going to try and get her on the show one of these days. We're talking a little bit about uh, the, at least I'm talking, about the impact that Pat Buchanan has had on America since the 1960s. And uh, I have been real privileged to be able to interview Pat many times over the years. And I've read all of his books. Some I like more than others. One of his most controversial books, probably his most controversial, not the one that got him fired from MSNBC, but one of his most controversial. And I have a signed copy of this book, actually, although it's personalized not to me, but to Don Imus. <laughs> Can you imagine? I think Bernard McGurk gave it to me uh, because he was a big Pat Buchanan fan and he wanted me to read it. I don't think he realized that it was signed, certainly not personalized to Imus, but he gave it to me and it's still proudly sitting on my shelf. But one of his most controversial book was admittedly revisionist history and it was called Churchill Hitler and the unnecessary war what is that war world war 2 world war 2 and he basically challenges churchill's role and by extension america's role in world war 2 and um i remember telling my friend mario duray who actually supported buchanan i think in 96 and 92 I remember telling Mario DeRay, you know, this is Pat's premise of this book, uh, Churchill, Hitler, and the Unnecessary War, is that, you know, it was an unnecessary war. We didn't need to get involved. And Mario DeRay said in the very DeRay-esque manner in which he speaks, he said, well, what was the United States supposed to do once Pearl Harbor was attacked? So what about Pearl Harbor? In 2020, this is... Um, this, I think it was 2020. Yeah, it was on December 7th. We, I was doing this show, so you, some of you might remember this. On December 7th, I interviewed Pat Buchanan, and I asked him about America's culpability, if any, with respect to Pearl Harbor. What is your take on America's culpability, if any, in the run-up to the Pearl Harbor attack and FDR specifically? Well, I wrote in the book, A Republic, Not an Empire, about the run-up to Pearl Harbor and how it came about. I mean, the Japanese were on a rampage in Asia, but they brought in basically a, a peace prime minister, Prince Kanoya, who wanted to cut a deal with the Americans rather than get into a war with them. And they made a number of efforts to do that. But the Americans, fearing what had happened at Munich and what became of Neville Chamberlain, didn't cut a deal with the Japanese, didn't talk to them. So then Tojo came in as the new prime minister and launched Pearl Harbor. Uh, one, uh, one of the cabinet members for Roosevelt said, we got to make sure they're perceived as firing the first shot. So there were a number of folks right up going to Pearl Harbor 
who wanted somehow to get us into the war mainly against Nazi Germany, which had attacked Russia in the summer, or the Soviet Union. But there was a real, I mean, the idea that that the United States was, uh, I mean, just caught totally blind by the diplomacy is a mistake. A lot of people thought and felt that this was coming. There's a number of books that have been written on it, whether or not FDR or members of the American government knew that the Japanese fleet was headed across the North Pacific. Some say we had broken the, we obviously had broken the diplomatic code. That's how FDR, Frank, uh, when he was, he knew Pearl Harbor, he got the Japanese note of 13 parts the night before Pearl Harbor and said, this means war. So they knew the that was coming, but did we have access to the naval code, which we eventually did later, when we had Midway? So that's the whole thing. It's a fascinating study, Frank. I've, I've been involved in it since I was a little kid, and my mm. father always believed Admiral Kimmel and General Short, who were in Honolulu in command, had been really treated shabbily, not let in on the intelligence, and ultimately scapegoated. You can't have a discussion about World War II without discussing Churchill. And in his book, he's pretty tough on Churchill. And it's interesting, there are now five generations, almost four generations, of both American and British leaders that try to be Churchill. They invoke Churchillian rhetoric, use Churchillian language, uh, fancy themselves as Churchillian uh, characters. And um, I ask him about the dangers of that. Uh, that Churchill worship. This is not from that same interview. And again, I'm jumping around here to try to string some sort of narrative structure together. Bear with me. Uh, This is from 2017 in which we talk, or 2016, I think, in which we talk about Churchill. Explain to me the dangers in the present day of this Churchill worship and everyone is Hitleritis. Well, the, 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 the dangers of the, of the Churchill cult, if you will, is the idea that we must stand up and defy our adversaries and, if necessary, go to war against them rather than to negotiate or appear to appease them. Chamberlain is the great villain. Munich is the great prototype of which, what was wrong, and Churchill is supposedly the great ideal of what was right. But Churchill, look at what Churchill did. He eventually appeased Stalin granting him all of Eastern Europe, whereas Chamberlain was what? Gave up the Sudetenland, for heaven's sakes, which was German, and the Sudetenlanders wanted to join Germany. Churchill took the country to war to save what? To rescue Czechoslovakia and save Poland? And that was my favorite thing to talk with Pat Buchanan about. It wasn't politics. It wasn't even foreign policy, which was right up there. It was history. And as much as I enjoyed talking with him about World War II and World War I and uh, all sorts of other things, the things that I most enjoyed talking with Pat on the radio about were the aspects of American history that he was an eyewitness to. And he wrote one of the greatest presidential history books of all time. It's called The Greatest Comeback. It's all about his time with Richard Nixon in 1968. And uh, I talked to him a little bit about that 1968 campaign and how Nixon, who keep in mind, Nixon was um, defeated for president in 1960, comes back a couple of years later to run for governor of California. He's laughed off the stage as he's defeated for governor of California, does a press conference. He says, you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. 
And after losing a statewide office in his own home state, after losing the presidency, after being written off, ABC News, I think it was, did a whole TV special, the political, the obituary of Richard Nixon. He comes back and wins big. And the only guy, his very first hire, Nixon's very first hire, was Pat Buchanan. And that's what this book is all about. And we talked about that 68 campaign. The boss asked me to monitor President Johnson's speech on Vietnam on a car radio at LaGuardia Airport to brief him when he arrived back from visiting Julie at Smith. At the end of that speech, President Johnson suddenly announced that he would not run again. Four days after that political earthquake, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis. Uh, obviously, that was not one of our conversations, but that was an interesting recollection of uh, him going back and uh, spending that time with Nixon in 1968. And I look back at what our last conversation was on the radio, and it was back in April. And we were talking about the Ukraine situation, which is still very much in the news these days and very heated. And a lot of what I've come to believe on the on the Ukraine-Russia situation I'll be honest with you, I've learned from Pat's columns and from my talks with him over the years. And when we had this conversation back in April, the things that Pat was saying were just as controversial back then as they would be today. I think Putin, there's no doubt that he started this war, he ignited the war, but the table was set by the United States. What did we do after we won the Cold War with Russia and Russia basically gave up the Warsaw Pact? The whole Soviet Union broke apart into 15 nations, and it sought a relationship with the United States. We moved our alliance into Central Europe, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary. Then we moved it into Eastern Europe, into the Baltic states, Romania, Bulgaria. We added 14 new member states to NATO, and we were seeking to bring Ukraine into NATO, Ukraine an integral part of the Russian of the Russian uh, Federation and an integral part of the Soviet Union into our alliance, which is directed against them. I think Putin, frankly, saw us pushing forward, pushing, 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 and he said, I've got to stop them. So he ignited this war. So I think we've got to take a look at the kind of commitments we're making ourselves, which are imperiling the vital national security of the United States for causes that are not related to our vital national interests. Mm. Who rules in Kiev or who rules in Donetsk or who rules in Odessa is not a vital interest of the United States to justify any kind of war with a nuclear power of the magnitude of the Soviet Union or of Russia. As you can hear, and that was just a few months ago, and his voice wasn't nearly as strong as it was just a few years ago. But... um, so that was back in uh, back in April. And then, you know, one of the things that really set him apart from a lot of conservatives in the Bush era, even though he'd run against Bush as a third party candidate, is, you know, it's difficult to imagine now. But back in 2002, 2003, the most um, the most popular thing in the world, especially on the right, was to be a cheerleader for the war in Iraq. And I think we know now what a disaster that war in Iraq was. I mean, we should not have been there. We should not have engaged in this. And um, it was a huge mistake on George W. Bush's part. And in my view, will be an irreparable stain on George W. Bush's legacy. And Buchanan 
uh, along with Ron Paul and Bob Novak and a couple of others, said so at the time and I think have been proven right. At the war, Dick Cheney and George W. Bush and the neocons brought to this country and put in place is coming to a disaster, and the disaster is occurring on the watch of Barack Hussein Obama. I don't think Obama's responsible for it. I do think the country agrees that we ought to get out of Afghanistan, we ought to get out of Iraq, we ought to stay out of Syria, we ought to stay out of Ukraine. But there's no doubt this is all coming down on his watch, John. But I think it's, uh, I think it's odd that they would, they would try to blame Barack Obama for something he didn't start. That was from the, uh, that was from the McLaughlin group. He was talking to John McLaughlin. So uh, if you want to comment, you can. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. One of the criticisms that has stayed with Pat Buchanan since pretty much 1990 has been that he's anti-Semitic or that he's a racist. And I had uh, Tim Stanley, who's a British journalist and historian, on this show last year. Brilliant man. Brilliant man. And he wrote the best book about Pat Buchanan ever. It's called Crusader. And it was objective, very objective, very heavily researched. You could tell he did a lot of interviews for it. And um, I asked Tim Stanley, and by the way, when I said this was the best book ever written about Pat Buchanan, I include the ones that Pat has written. I mean, Tim Stanley was incredible. So we did a whole interview about what was happening in Europe and on the world stage at the time. And then I asked him kind of towards the end, what about all these allegations of Pat Buchanan's anti-Semitism? Is there anything to it? As someone that has looked at Pat's work and his political career, do you think there's any truth to those allegations of anti-Semitism? I don't think he's personally anti-Semitic, no. I think that on uh, issues which are touched by the problem of anti-Semitism, he has sometimes taken positions which leave him open to the charge of that. That sounds like a very political and diplomatic answer, but I think it is that complicated that he's been drawn into issues where he's taken a position where he's found himself on the side of people who are anti-Semitic. Now, for for example, Israel. Uh, People who are critical of Israel can be critical for a laundry list of reasons, good and bad, and they can be motivated by anti-Semitism They can be motivated by care and concern for Palestinians. Um, In the course of doing that, they may well find themselves on the side of bad people and they they may find themselves inadvertently giving courage and moral support to bad people because that's the position they've taken. Uh, So I I think that's I think that's how that charge arises Mm. in the case of Pat Buchanan. Is he personally prejudiced and bigoted? I saw no evidence of it. And um, that's one of the charges about Pat that really so upsets me. Uh, because, look, he has made some remarks, uh, both in writing, but really just in writing, actually, that if you look at them uh, on their face without the context, it does look bad. It does look um, as if there's some prejudice to him. I don't believe there's a prejudice bone in his body. And he's um, he has a lot of Jewish friends. He's worked with a lot of Jewish folks, a lot of minority folks uh, for 50 years. And to me... I think a lot of that criticism of anti-Semitism towards Pat was really from people that disagreed with him. And they used it, and I see this with so many people these days, they used it as a way to sort of undercut his authority and his expertise on a given issue rather than respond to the merits of whatever issue he was talking about. So um, 
I think there's a big difference between somebody being personally bigoted and not patronizing a doctor or a broker because that doctor or broker is Jewish or uh, Hispanic or whatever the case may be, and somebody taking policy positions that you might not agree with. And I think a lot of Pat's uh, criticism uh, is based on policy issues that people don't agree with and the way that he expressed them. And, you know, Nixon, who was like a father to Pat Buchanan, Nixon was asked about Pat Buchanan. And keep in mind, Nixon did not support Pat Buchanan for president. He supported George W. George H.W. Bush. And he still defended Pat as not being an anti-Semite. He said of Pat Buchanan, uh, he said, this is while he's backing Pat's opponent. So um, he said of Pat Buchanan, well, if he's an anti-Semite, he's the only anti-Semite that I knew of that was taking Israel's side during the Six-Day War. Nixon said that publicly. Nixon said there was no greater advocate for American support of Israel in the 60s and 70s than Pat Buchanan. And internally, when there were debates about how to handle this in the Nixon administration, the Six-Day War and so forth, um, Pat was always steadfast on the side of Israel. Now, later on, it's true Pat did come to support an independent Palestinian state. You know what? A lot of people do. That doesn't make them... Um, that doesn't make them anti-Semitic. And I thought that I've always thought that was an incredibly unfair charge of Pat over the years. This is the last clip that I'll play, and I appreciate you indulging me in this. It's not every day your favorite columnist retires. Um, this is six years ago. One of the great lessons that I've taken in terms of a Buchanan-esque view on foreign policy has been that this idea that democracies are always good is bogus. It's basically hogwash, okay? Um, And this really, it's an extension of the Bush doctrine. This Bush doctrine thinking that we need to democratize the world, it's total BS, and it doesn't serve America's interest. You know, Pat Buchanan was asked by me and others over the years, what do you think of this Donald Trump America first philosophy? And Buchanan would say, well, I'm for America first, America second, America third, and America fourth. And if that's your philosophy, and it happens to be mine, then that doesn't always mean going all over the world to try to uh, wave the magic wand of democracy and turn these autocracies into democracies. We spoke six years ago on the subject of uh, liberal democracy evangelism, for lack of a better word. Let me end with this, uh, Mr. Buchanan. You uh, wrote recently a column about uh, liberal democracy asking if it's dead, uh, or at least asking if it's an endangered species. What do you mean when you say liberal democracy, and why do you think it might be an endangered species? Well, I think when you see what's happening in in Europe, for example, many of the countries over there, because of the immigration, it threatens the, many feel it threatens the the natural integrity of their population and drama, dramatic change in the character of the nation. They are electing leaders who will really defy the European Union and really reprotect their borders. And in Hungary and places like that, they've ta- they've they've elevated leaders who really don't believe in the idea 
for example, of the sort of the liberal democracy we have, people are beginning to believe that this back and forth and fighting with each other the way we did in the last election, that the strong man leader is a better role in the future. And even democratic capitalism, what they, at the end of the Cold War, every, Fukuyama wrote, that's the future of everyone. But it's not that. You've seen authoritarian capitalism rise in Russia and China, and now we have it in Turkey, and now you have it in Egypt, and now you have it in the Philippines. What is the trend in the future? It, is, it seems to me less and less, you know, uh, the liberal democracy basically that we have, and much more of a, an authoritarian-type government, looks to me the future of mankind. Bright man, brilliant man, somebody that I've learned a lot from. And uh, thankfully, he's not dead. He's just retiring. Uh, but uh, I'm going to miss him as a columnist. As I said yesterday, his column was the as soon as it hit my email box, that was the first one. I stopped whatever I was doing so that I could read it uh, immediately. And uh, if he ran for president today, I'd be a proud member of the Buchanan Brigade, even though we disagree on all sorts of social issues, all sorts of issues, period. You know, um, he was a, a, a long time and is a long time social conservative. I'm not. Um, you know, he was very opposed to gay marriage. You know, I, I was always for gay marriage. You go down the line, I tend to be pretty libertarian on most social issues, and at least in his heyday of running for president, that was not Pat's philosophy at all. Uh, but uh, when it comes to immigration, when it comes to trade, when it comes to borders, when it comes to not getting involved in these foreign wars, uh, I am a Buchanan brigadier through and through. You want to comment? You can. Otherwise, we'll move on. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. With the great guitar work of Andrew Wrigley, Ridgely, excuse me, who is 59 years old today. Happy birthday, Andrew Ridgely. Uh, I am a big fan of Wham. Always have been. All right. Uh, you can find me on Facebook as well at uh, facebook.com slash Fan. That's facebook.com slash Fan. I, I linked to that uh, Chris Matthews commentary and you can watch it if you want ian mcleod said i can't listen to that morons drivel now it's not clear whether ian is talking about me whether he's talking about chris matthews or the whether he's talking about pat buchanan i do think it's just one of us because it's moron apostrophe s rather than those morons apostrophe m-o-r-n-s apostrophe drivel 
Alan Ang uh, commenting, when I was in high school in the early 90s, I would get off the bus one strip, one stop earlier every Wednesday to buy the New York Post so I could read Pat Buchanan's column. I certainly uh, can appreciate that. Absolutely. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on Pat Buchanan's retirement. Joe is in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Joe. Hey, uh, Frank. Hey. Uh, the Pat Buchanan story. Uh, first, I, I loved uh, the McLaughlin Group. That was a great show Sunday mornings, and he was he was fun to watch. Uh, he brought it a little more lively. Um, so I, I definitely liked your uh, your send off for him when he retired. Thank you. Um, and then just I wanted to, to comment just on the breadth of the stuff you cover. Uh, I explained it to my wife the next morning because I work nights. I'll tell her what I heard. I told her about the pizza tip. Uh, she's like hardcore Italian, and she was like, "Really? You know, you don't get a cut?" I was like, "Nah, you, try. Let's try what uh, what he said." Um, just the things you cover with the different groups of people, uh, Doctor Sky, the uh, the artist tonight was just like extremely interesting. You very rarely put something on that uh, puts me to, puts me to sleep. Well, I appreciate it's, that, uh, Joe. That's so nice of you. Thank you. I uh, hopefully uh, other people feel the, the same way. Uh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. And you got to let me know how your wife finds that uh, the new style of uncut pizza. I, I will. I call back every once in a while. I'll let you know. Wonderful. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. That's awfully nice. You know, it's funny. My uh, the woman who delivers my newspaper, Donna, um, she said to me. Recently, she said almost the same thing. She said, you know, even when you do something that I'm sure I'm not going to be interested in, you find a way to make it interesting. And that's really the, um, you know, I I don't pretend to be the smartest guy on radio, certainly don't pretend to be the most entertaining or the funniest or certainly not the best looking. Uh, But uh, if there's one thing that uh, I think our show can lay claim to is that we are the most interesting show and we do cover the largest diversity of topics on anywhere on radio. And that's, uh, that's something, a, a label that I'll wear very proudly. 800-848-9222. Andy is in New Jersey. Hello, Andy. Hey, how you doing? I'm just wondering what uh, Pat's view would have been on the European union and combine and combine and world government and combining Canada, Mexico, and the United States as a new regional government. Cause I saw if you went on YouTube and, and, and searched Cronkite Hillary World Federalist, you'll see at the 540 mark, Cronkite said, we Americans are going to have to yield up our sovereignty and it's going to be a bitter pill. Then he praised yeah. George Soros. And then Hillary came on at the yeah, end and Andy, said, this so is our I new think, leader. Thank you, Andy. I think if you watch that um, 1992 speech where he uses the term New World Order, and that was the first time I ever heard it, was in that 1992 RNC speech, I think the answer is pretty clear, right? I mean, I think uh, NAFTA was the beginning of American movement of border eration. Now, NAFTA economically, not culturally, not legally, but economically, does allow the United States, Canada, and Mexico to be treated like one country. And there was nobody, uh, you know, the, the four steadfast opponents to NAFTA back in, in the 90s, early 90s, was Pat Buchanan, Ross Perot, Ralph Nader, and Jesse Jackson. Left, right, center. And they went to D.C. and uh, they testified before Congress, a Congress that was bought off by multinational corporations. And uh, they called these guys, when they went up there, the Halloween Coalition. Left, Nader, left, Jackson, center, Perot, right, Buchanan. And these guys were mocked. 
They were mocked as being behind the times. And Al Gore, remember, debated uh, Ross Perot on Larry King's show on the NAFTA issue. And ultimately, the globalists won that round. And uh, I think that's kind of, you know, we, we see the results of that, right? And I think a lot of the rhetoric that Trump implored and a lot of the rhetoric that Bernie Sanders implored opposing the TPP in 2016 is straight out of the Buchanan, Nader, Perot playbook. 800-848-9222. Um, uh, Billy, I don't want to cut you off after 20 seconds. So if you want to hold, please continue to hold. We'll get to you first after the top of the hour. And we'll discuss locker etiquette uh, when we come back. Uh, and uh, a we'll do the AC report. We have a really interesting guest for the AC report. Dave Kosky is going to be here. He's been a media pro. He's worked for the 76ers and a bunch of casinos. I'm looking forward to it. Until next hour, your influence counts. Be sure to use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. It will come as no surprise to you if we've met at any time in the last two years that I would not describe myself as a gym rat. I uh, do not go to the gym regularly. You know when I go on go to the gym? And I'm not joking about this. When I'm on vacation, there's something about when you're on vacation and you wake up in a hotel or a resort or something along those lines and... Um, you get a good night's sleep, and there's something great about start knowing you're going to drink to excess and maybe eat to excess so about starting the day with a great workout. That is pretty much the only time that I'm in the gym. And when are you on vacation? Maybe once a year. So that is about as often as I'm in the gym. Now, I'd like to change that. I uh, keep saying I want to change that, and um, I, I would like to go to the gym more. And I'm not making excuses because ultimately everything is a question of priorities, right? So I can complain all I want about, um, you know, about not having time to read or going to the gym, but somehow I've got time to uh, watch Star Trek, the animated series. So it's all a question of how you choose to spend your time. So I'm not making any excuses. But the point is, I don't go to the gym often. But there was a time when I did. And um, I, you know... I never really experienced what I think is big now, where you see people in the locker room and they're filming their progress and taking photographs of their progress and showing it for all the world on social media. And you have to almost worry about ducking out of the frame so that you're not captured on this person who you may or may not know on their social media stream. But I just retweeted something uh, from Joey Swall, who's, a, a, I think, a bodybuilder. He's certainly the CEO of Gym Positivity. He works out all the time. And um, he depicts, he, he shows, and I just retweeted, you can see it on my Twitter, at Frank Morano, um, and see the video and everything, Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And he shows this guy uh, filming himself as he's flexing. 
to his social media followers. And I guess the message is supposed to be, oh, look at the great shape I'm in. Look at the great shape I'm getting in. And, and that's great. Whatever keeps people motivated, I think that's wonderful. But what, what Joey Swall says in the video that I just retweeted, and you could take a look at it uh, yourself, and I completely agree with him. People have the right to privacy in a locker room. They should never have to worry about you filming. And Joey Swall says people need to start enforcing this. Now, I think this is a no-brainer. And the fellow that emailed this to me, and thank you to the listener that sent this to me because I would not have seen it um, otherwise, he agrees with me. But you go and read the replies, and there are thousands of replies to this. And not everybody agrees. Uh, The amazing Lucas writes, here's an idea. Get out of the shot. What? Get out of the shot. That's your response. Um, And, you know, there's a whole bunch of other people who don't agree with me and don't agree with Joey Swall. One person kind of has a foot in both camps and says, I agree with you. But you can tell these two were bumping egos. And you'll see the video, but essentially the video depicts two guys in an argument over whether it's okay to film in the locker room. He says that dude could care less about the actual filming. He's just trying to ego check the other guy that's completely minding his own business. I can notice that quick and the original argument really gets thrown out. Another guy writes... I feel like it's expected if you're walking into a locker room, there's going to be cameras and video recording. They're just documenting and recording their progress. Another guy writes, is this a joke? Gyms don't allow cameras in the bathroom and locker rooms. That's a crime. What do you think? Take a look at the video. I just tweeted it at Frank Morano. And tell me, do you agree with me that people should not be doing this? People should not be photographing or videoing themselves in a locker room, especially when there are other people in there. Why not show, if you want to show off your biceps or your pecs or whatever parts of your body that you want to show off, why not do that when you get home? Isn't it still just as impressive when you're home? Why do you have to do it when you're in the locker room and there's other people around and they might not want to be filmed? Let me know what you think. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 1-800-848-9222. I think that that this guy, Joey Swallows, is exactly right, that people should not be doing this. But these videos, if you go on the YouTube, if you go on Facebook, if you go on TikTok, these videos are everywhere. These videos have become ubiquitous. This is apparently the thing to do now. If you're a, a, a gym rat, is to show people that you're a gym rat, and flex in the locker room. And I don't think that's right. I don't know how this trend got started. I'm curious if you've observed it, but I don't think it's right. 800-848-9222. You have a thought, Kenneth. You're you're a gym rat, right? Yes. So I like to lift six days a week, but I'm conscious, Frank, about surroundings in the gym in the locker room. I'm not one of those guys because I watched the video on your Twitter, and clearly there's, there's guys walking around changing and whatnot, you got to wait until it clears out. You wait until the space around where you're going to record clears out. Because I do think that tracking your progress is definitely necessary. But I do agree with you. I wouldn't want to 
impede on someone's privacy. So well, I why? wait. Oh, so you do this. You film yes. at the gym. But not like, not like, oh, I'm lifting weights, like on video, uh, this and no, that. Like, no, just for progress. You're a relatively humble guy. I, I'm sure you're not obnoxious about yeah. it. But um, why can't you just showcase your progress at home? Because then you lose the pump. You lose the pump. You lose the pump. You, How much of the pump do you lose if you wait a half hour you, until you get home? You know, you're all vascular. You got to take the video after the pump. Oh, you, you have to. On. If you wait, it dies down. You, you don't look as good. So you're one of these people. Okay. All right. 800-848-9222. Matt, uh, you're not a gym guy, are you? Come on, Frank. Look at me. Am I a gym guy? You don't look that bad. Um, (laughs) Have you ever been a gym guy? No. Never. I've never gone to the gym ever in my life. Your whole life. My entire life. I've never been to. I have gym equipment in my house. Part of the reason reason, uh, that I was eager to talk about this is because there is a huge surge in gym memberships and in people attending the gyms 2023 has been a banner year in only a month for people joining gyms and attending the gym which i think is certainly a good thing and it's something that i didn't necessarily expect especially in the aftermath of the whole um covid situation and um even ashley graham who i guess is a an influencer or something she made headlines uh, because she's showing off a ripped gym session photo with her husband. Um, the She's a model, I guess. And she shared a behind-the-scenes selfie with her husband, Irvin, showing the aftermath of the couple's recent exercise session on Instagram. And in the snapshot, Ms. Graham was rocking a black bodysuit and simple silver jewelry with her hair pulled back into a ponytail while her husband opted to go shirtless posing in just a pair of uh, athletic shorts. And um, as evidenced by the shot, neither of them was wearing shoes. And uh, that has gotten a lot of people talking about the fact that they weren't wearing shoes. I don't know if they were at a gym or just working out in their home. Tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with John in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, what's up, Frank? Um, Real quick, before I uh, chime in on this, what happened with the William Shatner um, discount tickets? I'm still waiting for the discount code, uh, but I hope to have that posted today. Awesome. And then, um, yeah, I, I don't think you should be able to tape anything in the locker room. It's like a bathroom. I mean, when I used to go to, like, the sauna and the gym, I'd be, like, running, uh, be in the locker room, like, naked and stuff, going to the shower, back, you know, like. It's the same thing like a bathroom. There should be privacy there. Well, what about people like Kenneth here who say they do it responsibly? What's responsibly? What if you snag, like, somebody in the mirror accidentally and their junk is out? Well, he says he waits until no one's around. (laughs) How long are you going to wait? That's kind of... If nobody's around, I guess that's one thing. But if there's people there, absolutely not. See, you know what, though? I, I, I think there should be a red line. I don't think you should be able to have, you know, the camera... Uh, and uh, being able to show show off being all vascular. By the way, Kenneth, wh- where can people see your uh, vascular videos? Do you want to tell people or no? no? I don't really post it. Oh, like you don't. That. <laughs> I just I just do it for progress. Oh, okay. Well, that's slightly less obnoxious, I suppose. I guess that's okay. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. I'm not saying it's okay, but it's not as bad as this guy getting into an argument over being filmed. What do you think? Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. I don't think you should film. Period. Period. Uh, we, as much as I like Kenneth, and he usually he's a pretty common sense guy, I don't think you should be filming in the gym. It, look, if there's no one around, to John's point, maybe it's okay. 
But then it becomes, all right, if there's one person in the locker room and they're not in the shot, is that okay? It's just it's much easier just to have a strict red line of no filming in the locker room. I, I think that's what it should be. I think that's what the rule is. And I think that's what should be enforced. 800-848-9222. Norman in Brooklyn. Hello. Hey, Frank. Um, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a trainer. That's what I do for a living. I go to gyms in Manhattan and uh, I worked as a manager for two health clubs. Uh, last time I worked in health clubs was, uh, I mean, as a manager was 2016. Uh that only happens in like weenie gyms. I mean, like, you know, if you go to these serious hardcore powerlifting, bodybuilding type gyms, that's not acceptable. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, I, if anybody would come up to me and say, hey, somebody's filming in a locker room, uh, I would tell them to cut it the heck out. That's just not acceptable. I mean, that, may, that might happen in like New York sports clubs, these sort of like gyms where, Amateurs go, but in places where guys bench 500 pounds and 420 in my case, you know, and and guys got 20 inch arms, they don't go in the locker rooms and like start filming in front of. I mean, it just that's unacceptable. Home gyms, yeah, sure, no home gyms, whatever gyms after hours. Uh, All right, well, home gyms, nobody cares. You know, it is what it is. But right with respect to, um, you know, and I and I believe what you're saying because obviously you're in a position to know, but. Most of us who work out, you know, once in a blue moon, we are amateurs, right? So most people do have to contend with the Kenneths of the world taking selfies of themselves after a workout. So I get that it's not a problem in these high-end gyms where you guys are bench pressing 420 pounds. But for for those of us that are hanging out in gyms where they're bench pressing 130, it is a problem. Do the stuff. Okay. It's like it's unacceptable, and you could get you know I don't know I, it, it, you don't do that you don't do that you don't set up a camera inside of a locker room people are run, running around naked just don't do that it's uh, you know I, I I look when I worked out in R and J Hell Studio with Lou Ferrigno in in the in the seventies and eighties uh, you if you were to do something like that it would say with an eight millimeter camera or something. You would be probably assaulted. Well, they would beat the heck out of you. The, you the other thing was like. in the seventies and eighties, this kind of the, this era of constantly filming yourself to broadcast on social media was not here. Right? I mean, and there was exactly. no TikTok or YouTube or Facebook back then. By the way, what was uh, Lou Ferrigno like to hang out with? Lou Ferrigno was a very nice person, very quiet. Uh, very nice person, you know. He 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 did not train heavy. I never saw him handle like really like big big weights. Not not big weights like my like my cousin Boris would handle, like a four hundred pound clean and jerk. I never I never I never saw him handle anything like he would handle. I don't know two twenty five to three fifteen in the bench press, doing inclines, maybe two and a quarter overhead presses. Uh, very nice, huge. Very, very big, six foot five or six, uh, a very nice person, you know, and I knew his family because he had Frigno's gym on Bay Parkway and I knew his brother and his father, his father. Uh, and, um, you know, they were, they were nice people. I don't know. They, 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 uh, was a nice guy. All right. I well, didn't really, you know. All right. Thank you, Norman. Appreciate that, the, that insight. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. If you want to comment, uh, and we're talking about this story, and you can look at the video. I just retweeted it at Frank Morano with this fella who 
um, you know, uh, essentially took issue, and I agree completely with this guy, with people filming in the gym while other people are around. And uh, he said, and I don't think this is a controversial point at all, people have an expectation to privacy. Completely agree. Uh, by the way, a lot of people still commenting on uh, my discussion with uh, a discussion about Pat Buchanan. Uh, you know, I didn't expect that discussion to go an hour, but wh- what can you say? When you get a little carried away, you get a little carried away. Uh, John writes on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Morano fan. Buchanan retrospective spectacular. Wow. Answered so many questions that only you could fairly answer. Well, you know, I, I admittedly. I'm a fan of his, right? So I am uh, putting my biases right up front so you can judge on your own. So that's that. Hey, I want to thank my friend uh, Pat Russo. He was kind enough to invite me to this event last night uh, that I I went to at uh, a great spot that I've always wanted to go to called Tiro Asenio or Tiro Asenio. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's a phenomenal place. They actually have a, um, a a shooting range in the basement. So this was a fundraiser for um, – it was uh, the Federation of Italian-American Organizations of Brooklyn uh, inviting you to Il, Il, Il Centro. And uh, Pat is on the board of Il Centro, and he was uh, kind enough to invite me. And it was an incredible, incredible night uh, to benefit a, a great organization. And I did try my hand at some rifle shooting – they give you three shots, and um, I did okay. And I got better as the shots improved. Um, I'll uh, maybe I'll share this on Facebook or on Instagram. But look, my third shot, pretty close to the center of the bullseye. You can see there, right? Look, uh, my third shot. Yeah, you're pretty close. Yeah, not bad. So, um, and uh, I don't have a lot of experience. This is what I picture a sniper's rifle being like. I don't have a lot of experience, you know, with a sniper's rifle. Pat, I mean, forget about it. He was. Uh, and a lot of these other guys that were down there, they were all over the bullseye. So um, I'm not giving up my career as a radio talk show host to become a sharpshooter just yet. But it was uh, great to be there. And I'll just say this is, you know, who I ended up uh, sitting next to. I'm, I don't know if he wants his name mentioned, so I won't mention his name. But a great guy, a lawyer. <laughs> I'm not joking about this. You're going to think I'm making this up. Who I literally end up sitting next to. And he turned out to be such a nice guy. <laughs> the lawyer for the guy that shot Curtis and uh, and who's now out. I learned from from his lawyer. He's now out. So uh, Curtis better be careful. But sure, sure enough, the and you can't make this up. The guy sitting next to me is the lawyer for the person that shot Curtis, Michael Yanati. And um, and he's also Sid Rosenberg's best friend, which, of course, of course, he's Sid's best friend. So it was a great night, and uh, I had a lot of fun. I will say this, though. I kind of was rushing out of the house because this dinner started at 6, and I you know, look after my son until my wife is done with work at around a quarter after 5. So I hurriedly, as soon as my wife was done with work, I hurriedly ran upstairs to shower, get dressed, and I'm getting ready to leave. And I come down, and my wife is angry uh, with me, like really angry, right? And... um I'll spare you a lot of the details here for my wife's sake, but what you say makes no sense. No, no, no I've heard that one before. So, um, uh, we have ants, as you know, and my son 
was holding for a second when my wife is now watching him. Not when I'm showering and she's watching him. She, I guess, turned her back to him for a second while he's cleaning. He's holding one of these ant traps that I put out. So um, she's very concerned that he might have ingested some of the liquid poison. Now, uh, she makes me throw out all the all the ant traps that are anywhere in the house. He is not showing any ill effects. He's looking just dandy. He's looking fine. He's laughing. He's having a good time. She's got it in a separate area. She's calling poison control. She said, no, don't take the car yet. I may have to go and get this substance that makes people vomit, you know, so in case he's got it in the system. And uh, she doesn't know how much he ingested or even if he ingested all of it. She just sees that he was holding it and that some of the liquid spilled out on the floor and some is still in the in the trap. So she doesn't know how much, if any, he ingested, but she is uh, apoplectic. She's on the phone with poison control, asking for instructions and um, basically poison control. The kid looks fine. He, and I'm researching and I'm showing her these articles. If you're a human and I'm not recommending this, you have to ingest a lot of this borax, even as a 14-month-old, for it to make you sick. And I'm showing her these these articles uh, that is not going anywhere. It's not an argument that I was going to win. And quite frankly, it's not an argument I want to win. If there's even a chance that he could be sick, I don't want to take any chances. So uh, she's saying we have to monitor him for the next four hours. And this is what Poison Control said. And if anything happens and you see anything like vomiting or nausea or, or diarrhea, you got to take him to the hospital and they'll give him some IV medication. So um, we share one car now. So obviously I'm not going to leave her to fend uh, for herself and hope for a taxi to take her to the hospital. So I leave her the car and I end up taking the bus to this to work today, essentially. But first to this event at uh, Turo Asenio. And um, that delays me even more. And it's raining. And there turned out to be a big accident on the bridge, and uh, it was significantly delayed. I was about an hour and 10 minutes delayed, but I rushed out of the house. So I didn't take any business cards, which uh, a room like this with all these heavy hitters, you know, don't a lot of whom listen to me, I would have liked to have some business cards. And I didn't take any my money clip where I keep my cash. So I didn't have any I, – I keep a money clip with $2 bills on it to tip anybody that I encounter. And I, I would have used it to tip the coat check girl. I didn't remember to take any cash, did not remember to take any business cards. I did, though, remember to take some custom Frank Morano pens. So at the end of the night, after I get my stuff back, my uh, computer bag and my jacket, I say to the coat check girl, I said, I'm sorry, um... I don't have any cash, and I explain the situation. But here is a custom Frank Morano pen. And she seemed thoroughly unimpressed. She said, oh, that's that's okay. That's okay. I said, no, please, take it, take it, please. And she said, uh, you really don't have to. I said, no, please, I'll feel better. So uh, she has that pen now, and hopefully she uses it in good health. Speaking of good health, uh, all indications are my son is fine. He had no ill effects of that. At all, but it is going to be an adventure getting home, <laughs> taking the bus uh, in the wee hours in the morning now, after the show. We'll see where that goes. All right, we're going to talk with uh, Dave Kosky and go live to Atlantic City in a minute. But first, let me say hello to Steve in New Jersey. Hello, Steve. Hey, good morning, Frank. I wanted to comment on your conversation earlier about working out on vacation. Be my guest. So once again, you're super relatable because back in November, I was on a family cruise. 
And me and my cousin had made a pact. Every day, 8 o'clock a.m. sharp, top deck, we're going to do an hour walk, which was great. But after that hour walk, we started with Bloody Marys and didn't stop eating again until 11 <laughs> o'clock in the evening. So I don't know how much good we really did. I know, but at least you did it. At least you got the exercise, right? At least you got the, the fresh air and everything. It makes me feel better about overeating on vacation after a vigorous workout. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate it. All right, we'll go live to Atlantic City and talk to David Kosky in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. Well, it blew up a chicken man in Philly last night. It blew up his house, too. Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble bussing in from out of state. And the DA can't get no relief. Gonna be a rumble on the promenade. And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact. Maybe everything that dies someday he comes back. Put your makeup on, fish your hair up pretty, and meet me tonight in Atlantic City. A couple of days ago, I received word that one of the best-known uh, personalities in Atlantic City journalism had passed away. And look, I'm a very proud New Yorker. But if I had if I was ever exiled from New York and forced to find somewhere else to call home, it would absolutely be within the 48 blocks of Atlantic City. For my money, which there's less of every time I visit Atlantic City, there is uh, no place as interesting as Atlantic City, New Jersey. Whether you haven't visited in five years or you've never been there, it's a, it's a surreal experience visiting there. And uh, one of the people that for so many years in print, on television, and on the radio that did a great job capturing Atlantic City at, for what it was, if both from a casino perspective, a news perspective, even a sports perspective, was David Spatz. He had been a, a radio talk show host. He had been a writer for the press of Atlantic City. And he had had a very successful television program as well. And we received word uh, this week that he had passed away at the age of 71. And so no longer would you hear or see Curtain Call with Dave Spatz. From our studio in Atlantic City and tonight from the Music Box at Borgata Hotel, Casino and Spa, I'm David Spatz. And when I thought about who to invite on the program... Uh, to talk about uh, David Spatz' impact on media in South Jersey and Atlantic City and why he resonated so well with the people of South Jersey. The first person that came to mind uh, was uh, David Kosky. Dave Kosky is somebody that has worn multiple hats over the years. 
We've had people on this show that have been casino executives, and he's done that for some of the most successful casinos in Atlantic City, uh, the Borgata, the Ocean. We've had people that have been very involved in the uh, South Jersey or Philadelphia sporting community, and he's done that as executive vice president of the 76ers. But he also was the president and the general manager of Longport Media for several years in Atlantic City, and they still run and own some great radio stations, uh, including the one that uh, David Spatz used to broadcast on. And I am thrilled that uh, David Kosky has agreed to either stay up late or get up early for us. Dave, it's great to talk with you. Thanks so much. It's great to uh, reconnect with you. I'm sorry it's uh, on the occasion of Dave Spatz's death. Hey Frank, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on, and, and uh, yeah, I wish we were uh, wish we were reconnecting under better circumstances, but unfortunately, what can you do? Yeah, no. So uh, a lot of people listening around the country now, Dave, they may be hearing David Spatz's name for the first time. Who was he? Well, David was probably. Uh, I, I think you can say that he's the, the original entertainment writer, entertainment columnist for Atlantic City because he started with the Atlantic City Press. He was already working for the Atlantic City Press when casino gaming was passed in New Jersey. And he became their first uh, reporter dedicated specifically to the entertainment industry of Atlantic City. So David was the person when Frank Sinatra came to town, sat down with him or, you know, whoever whoever it was. And if you worked at a casino, Truthfully, um, you know, the, at that time, especially in the in the mid 1980s, every every newspaper in New York City, Philadelphia, they all had beat writers that that covered Atlantic City, and it was it was a it was a you know a really special time in the city. But none of those beat writers um, was respected more by the industry and by the entertainers than David Spatz. He uh, he just had a he had a gift that um, really was able he was able to put entertainers at ease and and so many times when you were on the casino side and you were scheduling an interview you'd have to spend time convincing the entertainer or the entertainer's management you know why this reporter was important to talk to you know can you talk to him can you talk to her with David Spatz you never had to do that because David Spatz his his name alone was you know. Hey, we have an opportunity with David Spatz. Okay, great. You know, when can we sit down with him? He was, and David was uh, over the years became. Uh, uh, we used to we used to kind of joke with him because you know you've always run into a person in your life who's a name dropper, and David Spatz could be the ultimate name dropper. But for real, you know, you could you could bring up anybody, and David could tell you with amazing clarity about the time that he sat down with that person and what they talked about. And then they went out to breakfast afterwards. And he was just, it was a different time in Atlantic city. And, and David Spatz was, um, was really the, the, the best that came along. He had, he had a gift that uh, is, is hard to match. And, and uh, I, I know that he was one of the few reporters that uh, was able to get in with Sinatra every time he, you know, wow. there's never any, Never anything. Just you know, uh, David David Spatz wants to talk to Frank Sinatra. Frank says fine. You know, it was it was uh, 
David was a was a very special person. I, I'm imagining that you uh, got to know Dave uh, and work with him when you were both at uh, Longport Media. Uh, we've seen a lot of people on radio be very successful over year, over the years and not be able to make that transition to television. A lot of people in print not be able to make the transition to radio. But he did all three uh, flawlessly. How was he able to pull that off? What made him so effective at being sort of a triple threat, print, TV, and radio? Well, you know, Frankie, you were um, you were talking about it with your radio show a few minutes ago, where you you talked about how people have said that a lot of your your subject matter is interesting, and that was one of the things that I think that was special about David is that whoever he sat down with, he was able to find uh, a you know a relatable subject, and and you know it. it it's funny because uh, he he started his TV, um, he started his TV work first before radio. Uh, yeah, I brought him on board at Longport Media because I thought he would be a great news director for us, and uh, you know to be able to do some of his entertainment, but more importantly, to be our news director. But um, when he was still with the Press of Atlantic City, he started doing his curtain call show, which he and uh, a uh, producer director in in Atlantic City, Jake Lassie, managed to syndicate at one point. They were on 51 TV stations around the country. Wow. And, and you know, it was, it was just David doing what he did with the press, just sitting down and talking to, um, you know, talking to uh, an entertainer and, and finding relatable subjects and, you know, you're one of his one of his closest friends is one of your uh, associates at WABC. Who is that? He and, he and Tony Orlando have had a have had oh. a relationship probably 35, 40 years, and very you know really very close personal relationships. Wow, I, I knew they knew one another. I guess I didn't realize their relationship went back uh, that far. And um, so they're, they're actually, I think they uh, they managed to. Uh, to uh, really uh, build a friendship, especially over their uh, love for fishing, too. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, we're overdue for a conversation with Tony uh, soon, too. So I'm going to, the next time Tony's on, I'm going to ask him a little bit about Dave's bats as well. Uh, what are you up to these days, uh, Dave? I, I alluded to the fact that you've worn a lot of hats over the years, uh, both from a media perspective and a media pitching perspective, conceito perspective, and a sporting perspective. What are you up to these days? Uh I'm with my wife. We have a uh, publishing company down in South Jersey where we publish several tourism uh, publications and uh, still do uh, still do a little bit of marketing. I'm 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 lucky enough to uh, be able to uh, to work from home for the first time now. It's, uh, I work out of my office at home. I uh, commuted to Philadelphia for almost 20 years, and now it's. Uh, now it's nice to uh, be able to stay a little bit closer to home on a regular basis. Uh, good for you. Good for you. Do you do you get down to uh, Atlantic City much these days? Um, yeah, you know, I I I, uh, I still have you know reason to go into the city occasionally. It's obviously not like I did um, during my career. I um, more or less was there twenty four hours a day at that time. But uh, no, it, it yeah, it's you, you're right. It, it's a uh, it's a really uh, complex and interesting place, and and uh, sometimes it's a lot deeper than than uh, what you uh, 
seeing headlines. No, I, I can imagine. From your perspective, as somebody that worked there for a long time in the kind of the, the heyday of Atlantic City, and then as somebody that worked there when it was really having a difficult time, as somebody that's worked at uh, at Trump properties, the Borgata, the Ocean, uh, independently owned casinos, corporate owned casinos, how do you think Atlantic City's doing uh, right now, business-wise, tourism-wise, and sort of just in, overall with respect to the, the feel of the city itself? How is it going right now? Uh, I... Look, I think that well, um, online gaming obviously has been um, has been a, uh, a really needed shot, and um, I, I think that one of the difficult things from a perception standpoint for Atlantic City is that often people look at it and they're like, "Yeah, but you know, their numbers are down, down to what? Down from twenty five years ago when there was no competition." Yeah, that they they probably would be. Because, <laughs> yeah, down from well, six no, billion it, to two billion. That's still nice to have the two billion. It, it, exactly. The the casinos in Atlantic City still do well. Do they do as well as they did in 1987? No, they don't, and they never will because you know it's the it's the the pie theory. There's more cuts out of the pie now. You know the the uh, or or actually the better. Better analogy is with with uh, you know use use television. Back in 1986, you had four major networks, so everybody was concentrated on those four major networks. Now you have 120 channels. There's still people that are watching television. It's just that it's much more diluted, and that's much the case in gaming. I I believe you know when you when you add when you add Pennsylvania casinos and New York casinos and Maryland casinos and Delaware casinos, there's just more opportunity. But Atlantic City still offers the complete package, which not everybody can offer. And and also the ability to be able to to stroll from one casino to the other. Most people have have their favorites, but there's also people who like a little diversity and Mm. and like to move between properties. And, And Atlantic City is really, you know, if you're not, if you're not going to Las Vegas or Reno, it's, one of the few places where you can do that. Now that you're not employed by a casino, I can ask you this and have some expectation of uh, objectivity on this one. And we're talking with Dave Kosky, longtime um, media professional and marketing consultant and marketing manager over the years. If you were recommending a casino for someone who's visiting for the first time to visit, it could be anyone, um, what, are, what are you recommending? I I still uh I still am uh, a fan of Borgata and uh I think that the uh I, I think Ocean right now has an amazing facility but um Borgata has just done it right for so long and I think that's one of the reasons why their numbers have been as strong as they have been for so long that um Borgata is still my favorite well, Dave, it is always a treat to talk with you. I look forward to seeing you soon, and uh, pretty soon, before you know it, my wife and I are going to make our annual privilege, um, pilgrimage down to Cape May, and I know you're right near there, so hopefully we'll be able to see you on the way and uh, and connect in person sometime soon. That'd be great, Frank. Take care, and love your show. Thank you. Thanks so much. I appreciate that, and uh, and you, you're, you have an open invitation. Anytime you feel like coming on, we'd love to hear from you. 
Take care. Thank you. Uh, Dave Kosky. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation about David Spatz or Atlantic City in general, you're welcome to. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. In a moment, big day in our family today. I'll tell you why. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I am the entertainer and I know just where I stand. Another serenader and another long-haired band. Today I am your champion. I may have won your hearts, but I know the game. You'll forget my name, and I won't be here in another year if I don't stay on the charts. I am the entertainer, and I've had to pay my price. Things I did not know at first, I learned by doing twice. Ah, but still they come to haunt me Still they want their say So I've learned to dance with a hand in my pants Let them rub my neck and I write them a check And they go their merry way I am the entertainer Billy Joel, the entertainer uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We'll take your calls in a minute. Uh, eight open lines if you want to comment on anything we've covered thus far. 800-848-9222. A banner day uh, for us here at the, the Other Side of Midnight because after a three-day hiatus, Alex Barnard has returned to work. Now, I kept yes, my distance uh, from him because, I mean, if he was sick enough to be out three days... I don't want him breathing all over me. Um, but I look pretty good. And then he's been doing the news locally, and uh, he sounds pretty decent as well. And uh, do we have any idea why Alex was out for three days? It sounds like it was a cold. He didn't feel well. He didn't feel well. That's my only comment. Interesting. He didn't feel well. I hope I hope somebody asked to see a doctor's note. After he was out three days. Did anybody ask to see a doctor? I think you're supposed to after three days. You're supposed to bring a doctor's note. Yeah, I would think so. Some some official documentation. (laughs) Three days in a row is a lot of time to be uh, a lot of time to be out. We're uh, and Alex here in studio to uh, infect anyone that might still be healthy. You better move away. Yeah, exactly. Um, Welcome back, Alex. It's good to see you. Come on, I'm not sick anymore. I'm I'm like 85% of the way there. Well, you were sick enough to be off for three days. I mean, that's... Right. Look at at his tan. (laughs) No, 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 no. (laughs) Lest any of our bosses be listening, he does not have a tan. Right, no, I don't. I'm paler than normal. Um, No, I I didn't have a fever or anything. It certainly wasn't COVID, um, because if it was, I still wouldn't Did you take a COVID test? I took two. Yeah, and no COVID, no COVID. Take whatsoever. a flu test. Well, no. Stri- uh, have a strep. No, no. So you're. Uh, how did did you, you go to the doctor? No. You were off for three days, and you didn't even go to the doctor. I didn't. I didn't want to get out of bed. All right. So w- describe the symptoms. What were you experiencing? I I mainly had a really horrible cough, uh, stuffy nose, run, runny nose. Um, I was coughing up some really nasty stuff. Don't want to get too, had a, too graphic. Had, sounds like you had a cold. Yeah, and it was a pretty bad one, I would say. 
Now, I hope that this did not interfere with your uh, drunken miniature golfing on Saturday. Um, it did a little bit. I was uh, that's when it started. Really, was that that morning? And I but didn't you were wa- still able to get all eighteen holes in. It was only nine. Nine holes. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, actually, the the place is really really fun. I'll have to tell you about that off air. But but um, when I was there, I was sneezing. I was. Um, like I, I was kind of in a daze. My, my sinuses felt like they were going to explode. I wasn't really having that good of a time, oh, well. honestly. How did you do in the mini golf game? Did you beat uh, Callie, your girlfriend? I lost to Callie by mm. one point. One stroke. <laughs> yeah, one oh, stroke. All right. We, there were, we did have, we had some good holes and we had some really bad ones, but Oof. I had one that was, you know, just one stroke too many. All right. Well, hey, at least you were able to get the game in. We're happy to have you back. We missed you. Yeah, well, thank you. And um, missed you guys, too. Yeah. But So three days with no doctor's yeah. notes. Good to know we accept that here. <laughs> All right? Yes, it's very, I'll, I'll it's very say interesting. I'll say, towards the end of it, I was like, I do. I want to get back. I'm starting to get bored lying yeah, I would hope home, so. You I know? would hope so. What did you do? Did you watch television or read? or I, just, I slept a lot. Slept. Okay, I, well, yeah. that's what happens. Yeah, right. I needed to. Well, welcome back. It's good thank to see you. you. Alex Barnard returning. Of um, what is your death metal uh, band again? Face Stealer. Face Stealer. iTunes, Spotify. Grab it wherever you can. Boom. There you have it. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. No doctors. No. Very interesting. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. We are happy to have him back though. Uh, it was uh, Kenneth was doing. You know that's the thing. When somebody's off, right? Whoever it is, you everyone else ends up doing more work, right? I was getting complaint emails and SMS text messages. At um, five, you know, at uh, you know, two hours after the show was off the air this morning, saying this podcast still isn't uploaded. The podcast still isn't uploaded. I'd say, whoa, we are very short staffed today. Yeah, buddy, just chill out. Yeah, because when we have people fill in, they do the work, but they don't know the show. Right, I know, like the person who works on the show every day. So there's Precisely. a process and there's a learning curve. Before they can get up to par, and that's just how it is. Are you using golf analogies because of uh, Alex Barnard's failure to beat Kelly in the mini golf game the other day? <laughs> no, but it did fit. Up to par. Yeah. All right. One of the people that was calling to complain about the uh, podcast not being uploaded was my co-brother-in-law, James, who in a matter of uh, four hours is expected to be a father. Uh, he and my sister-in-law, Sharon, who, and apologies to my other siblings-in-law, Sharon is by far my favorite uh, sibling-in-law. And uh, you may may recall that I was, I was asked once if I had to pick a female companion purely for platonic reasons other than my wife to, accomp- to be stranded on a desert island with, who would I pick? And I picked, I picked Sharon. And uh, she's a wonderful person, and I'm very excited for Sharon and James, who uh, are expecting. They don't know if it's going to be a boy or a girl, which I like. My wife and I didn't know either, but they're expecting a child um, within the next, you know, four hours or so. So hopefully by this time tomorrow, they will be the um, the proud parents of a healthy baby boy or girl or a non-binary person. I don't know if you can declare yourself non-binary that young, but who knows? I mean, it's the 21st century. You can do anything you want, right? So wishing everybody the best of luck over there at Stony Brook Hospital. And uh, I remember when my wife gave birth uh, 14 months ago, they heard about it at the hospital through Curtis, who was subbing for me, and they ended up rolling out the red carpet for us 
So if anyone wants to do that for Sharon and James uh, over at Stony Brook, you can go ahead and do that. I'm not going to be there. So all of my stalkers and protesters and everybody, they don't need to come to the hospital. They can wait until we visit after the baby and uh, Sharon are out of the hospital. But wishing them the best of luck. Poor Sharon has been um, stuck in her hospital room. And uh, she's had to catch up on a lot of uh, other side of midnight podcasts. So uh, that's torture for some people, but hopefully she is handling it as well as it can be handled. So uh, wishing the best of luck to uh, baby pecan. We hope everything goes goes well, and I'm sure that it will. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. You know, it's funny. I can really tell how well the how how well certain people know me by the articles they choose to send me right because i'd say yesterday about a dozen people all sent me the same article and it was about um the headline was and this was in a bunch of papers including the new york post why eating more cheese and other quote unquote bad foods could be good for you i told you yesterday how i applied for that cheese job to get paid $1,000 to eat cheese every night before you go to bed. In my case, it's every morning before you go to bed and then monitor how it affects your sleep. But in, according to this article um, by Lisa Young, who's a registered dietitian at, at New York University and the author of Finally Full, Finally Slim, we tend to view food as either good or bad for us. However, she said that that kind of thinking isn't necessarily useful or healthy. Generally, a small portion of any food is okay, and many of our favorite bites, it turns out, are a great deal more than okay. And she goes through white potatoes. She goes through cheese. She writes that, uh, sure, the beloved pre-dinner snack is high in calories, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't ever say cheese. It provides protein and calcium, so there's definitely a place in the diet for cheese. I feel like a lot of this is, is common sense, right? I mean, she goes through another one of my favorites, peanut butter. Uh, she mentions chocolate, eggs. These are a lot of my favorite foods, not really chocolate, but the rest. I, um, you know, I feel like this is a lot of stuff people know. But when you have something as delicious as cheese or peanut butter, the difficulty is not knowing that only a little bit is good for you. The difficulty is stopping after you only have a little bit is how do you stop um, after just one slice of cheese or one cube of cheese and now to have, uh, you know, 14 different types of cheese? That's the that's the the struggle that those of us who are cheeseaholics deal with. Uh, you know, again, I, I haven't read the book yet, so I'm hesitant to prejudge it. But it strikes me as one of those books that's chock full of common sense stuff that people have been saying for 30 years, and they're trying to market it with someone who has an impressive credential and a clever title, and make money in in doing so, which is fine. More power to you, if um, if that's the case. But um, it's just not uh, not for me. By the way, I um, I discovered something really interesting yesterday, and I, I don't want to link to this because there's so much comment, there's so much content that I'm going to be able to get out of this in the future. But I discovered this article called the Cabinet of Wikipedian curiosities. And this guy um, spent a lot of time browsing Wikipedia. And it's one of, and I can relate to this because I do the same thing. This guy writes, it's one of my most common procrastination activities. 
And he's collected a whole bunch of bizarre facts. For instance, I'm just going to mention a couple now because I spent, when I was exhausted this morning and I'd just come home, I spent 45 minutes going through all these when, instead of going through other things. That's why Wikipedia is so great. In killing both the patient and two other employees at the hospital, Robert Liston performed the only known surgery in history with a 300% mortality rate. I mean, isn't that interesting? Carl Sagan, the famous writer and science guy, was involved in this plan to nuke the moon for unclear reasons, including a possible boosting of domestic morale. The American Medical Association was founded in response to, and country music was popularized by, John Romulus Brinkley's radio program promoting the medicinal benefits, this is not a joke, of goat testicles. Um, The astronomer Tycho Bray lost his nose in a duel and had it replaced with a copper prosthetic. During a house party, his pet elk got so drunk, it fell down the stairs. I mean, the film Catch Me If You Can is about the elaborate frauds of Frank Abagnale, but his claims to be a fraud were themselves fraudulent. Isn't that wild? Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I am um, one of the, uh, the continuous themes that I have been hammering home, not only in the three years that I've been doing this program, but in the decade or so uh, that I've been doing a program on the radio, has been the need for local journalism and local media. And one of the things that's been very sad for me is the seeing the demise of local journalism around the country. And we've done all sorts of segments exploring why that's the case and what can be done to turn things around. But um, I am really frustrated at what we're seeing in terms of local journalism or not seeing these days. So I, um, I said that I thought the key takeaway from the George Santos situation – was that local journalism had failed. And look, the Santos situation, meaning, you know, essentially a con man running for Congress, it didn't happen in the middle of some rural district in Montana or Nebraska, no offense to those places. It happened in the shadow of New York, Queens, Nassau County. And 
you'd think if there's one place, especially a place like Long Island, which still has a local daily newspaper, where they would have been able to expose a guy that ran for Congress twice and lied about very easily verifiable facts, it would be Long Island and Queens. And yet, aside from one publication, uh, the North Shore Leader, run by Grant Lolly, Newsday didn't write a word about it. Now they're trying to make up for lost time by, uh, by you know, doing article after article about what a con man he is and what a fraud he is. But where were they during the campaign? Well, I think I'm not the only one to recognize the crisis that we're at in this country in terms of local journalism. And now... Local journalism groups representing more than 3,000 local newsrooms have come together to create a new nonprofit that aims to save local news through bipartisan public policy initiatives, mostly centered around tax credits. And a lot of the people that we've had on over the years uh, with ideas on how to save local journalism, this is traditionally one of the things they always suggest. So there's this new group, and maybe we'll have somebody from this group on, Rebuild Local News. And it aims to deliver 3 to $5 billion in relief for local news companies. That's according to Stephen Waldman, a longtime news advocate who's leading this little coalition. If even a fraction of that money was used to hire and retain journalists, the number of local reporters in America would likely double. There's also, this is important to me, not only because I'm a voracious consumer of local news, because but because I met my wife when she was a, uh, a local news reporter. And uh, if there was the situation regarding local journalism back when I met her that there is today, we might never have met. Uh, the group's members include local journalism coalitions that represent thousands of outlets such as the Institute for Nonprofit News and the Local News Consortium, as well as major philanthropic groups such as the Lenfest Institute for Journalism and the American Journalism Project. Uh, one of the largest news labor unions in the country, the News Guild CWA, they're also a member. So far, this coalition has raised around a million dollars from philanthropic groups like the Ford Foundation, MacArthur Foundation, and others. And so far, Microsoft is the only for-profit backer of the group. So here's how it works. At the federal level, Rebuild Local News, RLN, is asking policymakers, or they will ask policymakers, to consider things like payroll tax credits for local news companies and consumer tax credits to incentivize citizens to buy subscriptions to local news organizations. At the local level... The group's eyeing reforms like tax credits for nonprofits or local businesses that would help incentivize community groups to buy legacy newspapers from hedge funds. It's not clear to me is if this includes things like radio stations as well, because one of the things that's been very sad for me is seeing all these AM stations all over the country, including a lot of great stations with great histories, go dark. Because no one wants to run them. No one wants to be in the radio, AM radio business in some of these markets. Not big cities like New York, Chicago, L.A., uh, Baltimore. But, uh, you know, tiny. In tiny cities, a lot of AM stations have just gone dark. Pressure is mounting 
on the government to address the country's local news crisis. And a lot of people, including Michael Smirkanish, have said what I've said about the Santos situation is that this is a failure of local journalism or really this is an example of what happens when there is no local journalism. There are these news deserts that are popping up. We've talked about food deserts before, places like Atlantic City, for instance, where there are no grocery stores. There are news deserts around the country, places where there's no local news. Some people don't care. What does it matter? What do we need our local news? I still have uh, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, The New York Times, Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal. Well, it matters. It matters because if you don't know what's going on in your community, it's very easy for crooks to get away with shenanigans. And if those crooks happen to be elected, then the shenanigans affect you. And look, a better informed citizenry is a better engaged civic populace. They not only will elect more virtuous people, but they'll support their community. How can a community know that they have to improve the traffic situation if there's no reporting on the traffic situation? How can a community know it needs a stop sign or a traffic light if uh, they don't know that people keep getting hit at that corner? The local news problem is a big problem. And look, I don't know whether this is the right approach, but I'm I'm glad somebody's proposing something to turn this around. Newspaper employment, people like my wife who worked for a local newspaper, has fallen by around 70% since 2006. Think about that. In 2006, there were 127,000 people working in newspapers. Today, there's 36,000. And newspaper revenues have fallen just as precipitously. They've fallen around 60% to $20 billion since 2005. So my question for you is, what do you think of this idea? Giving um, consumers a tax credit for buying local newspaper subscriptions and giving, um, giving... payroll tax credits for local news companies to hire people. If you don't like that idea, what's your idea to save local news? Or do you not care? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. It's no secret. I think we have a lot of conservatives that listen to this show. And it's great. It's fine. And I want to be very clear. This is not just a show for conservatives. I want people listening if they're liberal, conservative, non-political, libertarian or vegetarian, socialist, whatever. I want everybody listening to this show. And we welcome you. Um, We're not excluding anybody. But Donald Trump, he used to say something very interesting during the campaign, the first campaign, and uh, in the first couple years of his administration. He said, you know, I look at the national coverage that I get, and it's just horrible. But. You contrast that when I go city to city and I do a rally somewhere or do local media and the local media that I get is great. And it turns out that local media could be pretty influential. My friend Joe Piscopo used to tell me that when he would be performing around the country, that the way to sell tickets was to go on the radio uh, or to meet with the local newspaper editor with the big local media outlets in those communities and promote what he was doing. It wasn't to go on The Tonight Show or David Letterman and promote what he was doing. It was to go into those local communities and do it. So uh, I'm curious 
What do you think of this idea of tax credits for newspaper subscriptions? Like it? Dislike it? Not sure. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And as Colonel Jack Jacobs likes to ask the question, if not this, then what? He says, if not now, when? If not you, who? Right? Um, If not this, then what's your solution to save local media? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. That is the question. A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. I find uh, this to be something that uh, everybody, irrespective of your age, irrespective of your politics, needs to be concerned about. And, you know, we, we talk about the potential problems with AI. And I do think that AI is one of the things that could soon totally replace local journalists in many communities. And I think you may see newspapers, uh, you know, like including maybe your hometown paper. If they have a skeleton crew, maybe they're going to look at AI as a way of, um, I don't know, replacing some of those human staffers. And I think that's a shame. Uh, but call in, tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 1-800-848-9222. Uh, and uh, we have eight open lines if you want to comment. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we're going to talk with Brian Kilmeade from the Fox News Channel. Brian Kilmeade, I continue to be in awe of what a hardworking guy uh, he is because the guy is on television and radio, I think, six hours a day. And then he's writing books. And then he's on TV again on the weekend. And then he's doing guest spots on other people's shows. And then he's writing books. He's coaching soccer teams. He's a father, a husband. I look at a guy like Brian Kilmeade's schedule, and I just feel guilty. Because I can barely get done all the things that I absolutely must get done in the course of a day. And I still have my wife tell me, how come you didn't get that done? You told me you were going to do it. How come you didn't get this done? You told me you were going to do it. And I'm I'm barely sufficient. Kilmeade is thriving at all these areas, and I have no idea how. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Joe is in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. How you doing today? Do well, um, thanks. Frank, I'm actually opposed to this tax credit thing, and I'll tell you why. Uh, we we keep on redistributing taxes or taxing more, and you know where's the money coming from? Uh, and taxes are necessary because you have to support a community. So we can't, you know, rob from Peter to pay Paul. Um, you know, it's the American way. That's how you support a community is through taxes. Now, I wanted to add, you may be surprised by my comment. I'm a retired newspaper reporter of 37 years. Um, so my idea to save newspapers is basically go to a nonprofit form or have universities take over the distribution of news through their journalism departments, et cetera. Well, I think Uh, that's interesting, right? Because we've seen in New York anyway, and really in other places too, some great nonprofit journalism. One of my favorite media outlets in uh, in New York is an outlet you might be familiar with. It's called The City. So um, uh, they're doing a great job. But, you know, it's interesting. The nonprofit groups – because of all the money that gets donated to them, uh, the people that donate that money get a tax credit as well. That's also a form of, of tax credit or at least tax deduction. So isn't that, uh, as you would term it, robbing Peter to pay Paul? 
Well, that's a little different, Frank. That's a charitable uh, deduction you're doing on your uh, income taxes, I think is what you're saying. Correct? Right, right. But, uh, but, but, look, so, but follow me, right? So let's say yeah. I have, uh, you know, a Frank Morano News, and I'm serving the um, – I'm a nonprofit media outlet that serves the metropolitan area. People that give to me get a tax deduction. Now, let's say instead I am running a for-profit media organization, Frank Morano News, the for-profit version. The people that that subscribe to that are getting a tax deduction under the under the proposal that uh, Rebuild Local News is putting out. So isn't it the same thing? It's just a question of who's getting the deduction, whether it's the donor or the purchaser. Well, I think the difference is, Frank, that just say you're you're in New Jersey. I can speak better to New Jersey where I'm a lifelong sure. resident. Uh, you know, you have municipal, you have county, and you have state taxes. You don't want to pull away from them because they provide necessary services to the community. The thing you're talking about, about the charitable deduction, that would be on a, on a federal level. So it would it would just be a different place uh, where the money's going, and plus it would be uh, more of a distribution around the country. All right. Well, I I I, I still think it's you know I still think it's using the tax code uh, to incentivize certain behavior. But I appreciate the call, Joe. Yeah. And uh, hey, Frank, I, can I just, can yeah. I just add one thing? Be my guest. There's a great, yeah. there's a great group. Uh, it's called Report. Uh, I think it's called Report for America or Report to America. It's a nonprofit that's been recently formed, I guess. I just heard about it, and they're supplying reporters to places in need around the country. Oh, really? Give give me the name of it again. It's either Report for America or Report to America. I think you would find it very interesting, and it would be a very interesting segment. They provide reporters to news deserts around the country and uh, things like that. Oh, that's I'm going to check that out. Thank you, Joe. Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. I like that guy. 800-848-9222. Jerry is in Franklin Square. Hello, Jerry. Hi. How are you, Frank? I'm doing well. Thanks. I was listening to uh, your comments about your wife. And um, I'm divorced, so I'm nobody to comment. But uh, I feel bad for men like you. (laughs) How come? Because I see you as a hardworking American, hardworking guy. And I think that nowadays, uh, men, we don't get enough credit for doing enough things. There's always somebody in the background saying, oh, you're not doing enough, you're not doing this. But if you watch the news, the guy who took the gun away from from that psychopath was a man. The guy who jumped in and saved the other guy, the weatherman, is a man. We don't get enough credit. I don't think you get enough credit. Well, you're very kind, Jerry. But, I mean, in fairness to everybody else, I haven't disarmed any mass shooters anytime soon, (laughs) anytime recently. So I appreciate appreciate that. I'd like to think I would, but I haven't. You mean waking up, waking up and slaying the dragon for your family, which a lot of men don't do in this society, is not slaying the dragon? Well, I appreciate that, Jerry. Thank you. But so is my wife. Right. I mean, she's doing the same thing. She's uh, she's working a full job and taking care of her child and she's taking care of our household. So uh, believe me, uh, she's working much harder than I am, all told. 800-848-9222. Michael is in New Jersey. Hello, Michael. How you doing? Uh, I'm just going back to your uh, tax credits for the newspapers. Right, and I want to be clear, uh, Michael. It's not my tax credit. It's a tax credit that I'm mentioning that someone else is proposing. I'm just mentioning it. Yeah, but I'm I'm, I'm of the nature of a business, take care of business. You know, 
the business isn't well, you know, find something else or, or you know, try to figure out how to get back the leadership, how to get, get back. Why are, we, why are we constantly trying to give businesses and, and uh, like, special interests uh, money to, to let them figure it out, let them figure it out themselves? It's not government-subsidized, uh, not socialism. Let, well, let, let business take care of business. Yeah, I, I hear you, uh, but – that's uh, that's fine. That's all well and good. But I have two problems with that. One, um, the the logical conclusion of that is if we do nothing pretty soon, sometime soon, there will be uh, no local journalism in many communities around the country. OK, um, now I, I'm all for if there's a for profit solution, as I've heard some people talk about, I think, uh, um, you know, uh, my friend Lee, Lee uh, Len Bernardo was working on a digital local equivalent to this. And the patch has tried it. And uh, Vicky Schnapps has tried it. A bunch of people have tried it. If there's a for profit solution, I'm all for it. But I don't want to sit by and do nothing. That's why I ask, what's the alternative? If not this, then what? The other issue that I take is um, if you look at the industries that are most uh, benefiting benefiting from government subsidies, they are um, they're big industries, energy, agriculture, transportation. You want to know how much uh, farmers in this country are getting for corn? Do you think there would be corn syrup in everything if uh Farmers were not getting paid government subsidy. There would absolutely not be. We subsidize all sorts of industries in this country, uh, supposedly private sector industries. Right? Remember, big finance, the banks. What happened when they got themselves in trouble? Who did? Who bailed them out? We did. The taxpayers bailed them out. So it's just very interesting to me that um, we're bailing out everybody: the farmers, the energy industry, agriculture, uh, finance, real estate, and yet. When it comes time to uh, do something for a, a a field that's really p- potentially helping individual Americans, that's when we say enough is enough. That doesn't that doesn't sit well with me. Uh, so if we want to have a society with no subsidies, fine. I'm all for having that conversation. That's a libertarian paradise, right? But it, we're not doing that. Nobody's talking about doing that. We're in a situation now where we're saying, okay. We're going to uh, subsidize this industry, this industry, that industry, and we're not going to subsidize this one, that one, and this one. We support the free market for you in that we're going to let you fail, but we don't support the free market for you. We're going to bail you out when you get yourself jammed up or let you benefit from the taxpayer's ingenuity or investment. No, no, it, it, it absolutely does not fly with me. Um, especially for something as important as local journalism. I hope uh, I hope I'm I'm clear about that. 800-848-9222. You want to talk about the real estate industry? You know, the more more when I borrow on my credit card and I pay interest on my credit card, I'm not getting any t- sort of tax deduction from that. However, um when I then go and buy a house and I take out a mortgage and I pay interest on that mortgage, I do get a tax deduction from that. So if you're not a homeowner or you don't have a mortgage, you're lucky enough to not need to borrow money, you are subsidizing the people that did borrow money to buy their house. Now, the argument in favor of that is Well, real estate sales are good for America. It's good for the construction industry. It's good for people to have houses to build. Fine. 
we've made the decision as a country that we're going to subsidize real estate. Why are we saying we're drawing the line at journalism? Either we have a free market or we don't. You want to talk health care? Same situation. Um, you know, if you get your uh, employer, if you get health insurance through your employer, as I do, that is a tremendous benefit that you are not paying taxes on. And if you think you get in trouble for not paying taxes, you don't get in trouble for not paying taxes for fringe benefits, ask Alan Weisselberg, who uh, got a lot of fringe benefits as the head of the Trump organization or the CFO of the Trump organization and is doing four months in Rikers Island because of it. But the point is this. If you, the cost of my health care from my employer is probably thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year. I'm not paying taxes on that. However, let's say uh, let's say Matt Blaze. I don't know Matt Blaze's status here, but let's say he's part time or he doesn't get health insurance through through our company, right? Th- that means he's buying health insurance on his own, okay? And that means he's buying it with after tax dollars. So in essence, Matt Blaze, in theory, I don't know in practice, in theory, Matt Blaze is subsidizing my health insurance through the taxes that he's paying. So we're subsidizing the health insurance industries. We're subsidizing big finance. We're subsidizing real estate. We're subsidizing the farmers. And you're going to tell me the one industry where you believe that they should uh, be okay to fail thanks to the free market is journalism? No. Absolutely not. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. Morning. Um, if I could make a suggestion, when I first heard this, I was a little bit wary because I'm like, where's the money coming from? And I think some other people brought this up. Um, I think I have a solution. Um, since a lot of people, including you, I think, believe that it's digital media that has been killing off the local journalism, why don't they put a tax on advertising revenue from digital media and use the money from that to fund these tax credits? or to directly pay these local uh, newspapers? Because it seems to me if money is the real issue that people are complaining about, that would be the easiest way to get the money, and it would be less harmful to regular people who pay, like, income tax. Why not tax Google? Why not tax Yahoo and all these other companies that are using their digital content to destroy local newspapers? Well, I think that's interesting, and I I think that's actually one of the – Areas that maybe in the new Congress that you might see the left and right get together on is treating the big tech companies a bit differently uh, because of um, because of what they've done, not just in this area, but several other areas. I think that's an interesting suggestion. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Oh, um, uh, Dennis, very quickly, because then we have uh, Brian Kilmeade in the thousand dollar minute. But I'll give you the last word. Thank you, Frank. Uh, everything's, everything's spot on here. I'm, I'm on a CPA in a town that has a local newspaper that is a nonprofit. The thing to worry about then is if the board is really nonpartisan, mm. and it becomes it becomes a tool of the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party. In our town, our local paper used to be owned by Elizabeth Ailes, Ailes, the wife of Roger Ailes, and they were written out of town before he passed away. Uh, now it's now the nonprofit run by a former uh, kind of um, Gordon Stewart was his name. I should probably should mention names on the radio, but uh, they, their board is all the Democratic, Democratic Party of Philipstown. 
so I think the 501c3 is a good example. I am a CPA who specializes in that topic. You have to be careful that you don't run into a lowest learner incident where you penalize only conservative nonprofits. So yeah. the hey, IRS has to do a better job. Dennis, thank you. you, you your phone's a little uh, crummy, but I appreciate the uh, the insight there. I think I made out most of what you did, what you said, and uh, hopefully the the audience did as well. All right, seventh caller to eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. You will get an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, 800-848-9222. And then uh, we'll talk with Brian Kilmeade, find out what's on his mind, because uh, he has his finger on the pulse of the news community, local, national, whatever. 800-848-9222. You can be the seventh caller now and try your hand at winning some money straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Now, that means when, uh, if all goes according to plan, my niece, nephew, or non-binary they is born in three and a half hours or so, that he will have the same, or she, or they, will have the same birthday as Eddie Van Halen. So, uh, found it to be a good good day to play a little Van Halen. Also, Paul Newman's birthday today. And uh, my sister-in-law, Sharon, said that that was... Very fitting, because she drinks Newman's Own coffee every day. Very interesting. Also, uh, General Douglas MacArthur would have had his birthday today. All right. um, Without further ado, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's meet today's contestant, Michael, in Brooklyn. Hello, Michael. Hey, Frankie. How are you? Michael, I'm not, I'm not taking you away from anything, am I? Uh, it sounds like I'm interrupting you. No, you're <laughs> not quite. All right, no. Michael, you've heard this segment before, I guess. Yes, I have. All right, so you're ready to go. You ready to get started? Yeah, sure. Okay. I, 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 I don't think I'm going to win, but... Well, no, okay. no, you can't You can't come in with that attitude. you got to believe well, in yourself. You're going to be fine. All right. All right. Okay. All right, just don't get nervous. And if uh, an answer seems obvious, it is, okay? Those are the two things to keep in mind. Okay. Thank you. All right. Uh, what planet do you live on? All right. What president appears on the quarter... Oh, wow. Uh, George Washington? What city is the United Nations headquartered in? New York. What is the capital of New Jersey? Uh, oh, uh, Trenton. What artist once said, in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes? Oh, wow. You got me on that one. 
Uh, think, think about it. Famous artist, 20th century, father of pop art, one of the fathers. Think oh, of, wow. Think of Campbell's soup cans. Oh, Campbell's. Um, oh, no, I... I'm stuck. <laughs> All right. Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol said that. Okay. <laughs> All right, Michael. You made it up to um, question number five. I'm going to put you on hold and uh, give uh, give Kenneth your information, and we'll send you a consolation prize. All right? Thank you, Frankie. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening. Thanks for playing. All right. Um, somebody that is already all decked out in Other Side of Midnight uh, paraphernalia, which you can get at Other Side of Midnight at the uh, Other Side of Midnight store at wabcradiostore.com, is the co-anchor of Fox and Friends, the host of the nationally syndicated Brian Kilmeade host and the uh, show, and the host of One Nation on the weekends. He also happens to be in his spare time a New York Times best-selling author, Brian Kilmeade. Hello, Brian. So, is this a store I could walk into? I mean, is it is it like next to a CVS and, and a Dick Sporting Goods? <laughs> it's and a, I walk into another. I'm going to say it's all digital, Brian. So you can uh, you can oh. you can check it out. Uh, I have a feeling you're going to be very pleased with some of the merchandise we're offering. Well, no, I, I'm sure I would. I just question the timing. Now that the holidays are over, <laughs> now you roll out a store? I mean, do you understand that people shop before Christmas? I hear you, Brian. Uh, I, I couldn't compete with all those uh, sales of the President and the Freedom Fighter. Uh, the, oh, okay. Our audience has a finite amount of disposable income, right? But if people do, do want to check it out, that. they can go to store.othersideofmidnightshow.com. All right. Now it makes uh, sense. There's a lot to get to uh, in the news, Brian. Uh, let, let, this situation with the migrants. You have been uh, all over this, both the cost, uh, the issue in terms of the busing, and now it's become a crime issue as well because we're seeing an uptick in crimes in New York, which as a city, let's face it, that didn't exactly need an uptick in crime, committed by some of these migrants that were bussed here and are being, um, being housed here. Where do you see this going, Brian? Number one, I had Police Commissioner Ryder on and Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman to talk about the arrest in Garden City uh, because it's so much more than four illegal immigrants in a 2006 BMW taking over 12,000 worth of shoplifted goods with them. Because it turns out, I didn't know this existed, there's a South American, uh, basically, crime ring. They come in here. These guys came in July. They're being housed for free in a New York City hotel. They have enough money to go get a BMW, unregistered, by the way, uh, and drive through. They knew where to go. Garden City, one of the nicest places on Long Island, always will be. And they knew exactly where to go to get where the money was and what to get. And when they got them, they they said, okay, they basically gave their names and where they came from, everything. And they could not be arrested. They could not be deported. They got an appearance ticket for Tuesday. And drum roll, please, they didn't shop. So I'm, listening to, I'm looking at the police commissioner of Nassau County, and he knows the rise in crime has everything to do with these illegals. We know they're creating havoc in New York City where we work, and we're just bystanders. And I, I just find this intolerable. If you told me five years ago this would be the case, I'd say, no, you know, maybe for a week, maybe for a month. That's been the policy. Uh, it's you. You shake your head at, at a lot of this stuff. It's just, it's just crazy, and it's incredibly sad. I did enjoy your uh, interviews on both uh, radio and television with the former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. 
Um, uh, tomorrow, I won't pin you down on this. I- I'm gonna I'm gonna ask who Mike Pompeo is kidding when he says that uh, there's no no aliens or UFOs. But I won't pin you down on that, Mike, because I, uh, uh, Brian, because we know I didn't you're hear him say that. very Sorry. very close to the uh, the deep state and all. But um, M- Mike Pompeo is uh, generating a lot of controversy with some of the things that he's written uh, in this new book of his. Um, where do you see the Pompeo for president balloon going? He seems to certainly have an interest in running. Now, maybe he's kind of stoking the flames to sell a book, but it seems like he's got an interest in uh, in possibly running in 2024. Do you think he takes the plunge? Well, listen, I mean, he's building out a resume as the type of person you want as president. Uh, you know, the CIA director, extreme conservative, understands local politics, then he understands national politics on the select intelligence committee, number one in his class at West Point. Of course, you got to serve for five years after, uh, knows what it's like post-Cold War, was in West Germany, turns into Germany. So he understands it. Then he gets the CIA experience, says it was by far uh, the best experience of his life, loved being Secretary of State at a very consequential time when the Abraham Accords get done. Uh, And also, I like the deferential. He's not saying, look at me, look what I did, ever. He's saying in that that West Point fashion, this is what we did. This was my interaction. You could decide what role I played. So I love that. He's very confident. And I, I don't know, he was on Gutfeld. He was on Outnumbered. And he's doing something that they want Ron DeSantis to do, too. You should. You're competent. You're extremely bright. Show me you got personality. And he's laughing, you know, not laughing at Khashoggi's murder, but he's showing a lighter side to him. He's also not afraid of Trump, likes him, understands he's a challenge, accepts him. And it reminds me of this. And I don't even know if I said it on the air or off the air. But if you're in the New York Yankees in the 1980s and Reggie Jackson walks in the locker room and he's totally different than Thurman Munson and all the others uh, that make and Craig Nettles and all the guys that make up those Yankees. But, man, is he good. Yeah, he talks about himself in the third person. He demands all this attention. He's not like us. But, man, if we want to win a World Series, we need him around. we got to learn to live with him. And he looked around and said, you know, he's got these great qualities. I could work with Trump. And I could deal with him. And I'll I'll deal with him flat out. And and when you say, I'm going to abandon the courage, Mr. President, let me just tell you the other side of that. I'm not going to run to the Washington Post and say the president's crazy and volatile and he needs to be thrown out like other people in the administration. But at the same time, that's the exact opposite in which he is. He's Mr. Discipline. He's uh, very formula oriented. So I, I'm seeing him smile and I'm laughing. And I think you're crazy to dismiss him. I think he's got enough money behind him to last. But I also think my guest on Saturday, my lead guest is Tim Scott. Mm. And I've talked to people around him. Frank, he's running. I'm well, telling you, he's running. You know, it's and so funny a lot that you, of people backing you, you him. say that because you've heard so many other people uh, mention Glenn Youngkin, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, Donald Trump, Nikki Haley. I was interviewing uh, Michael Medved, certainly an astute observer of, uh, of politics for a long time the other day. I asked him, who do you think is the most electable Republican in the uh, 2024 field for the general election? And the, he, without hesitation, said Tim Scott. Yeah, I mean, he, he absolutely is. What I fr- I'm afraid about is he's actually too good a person. And I worry on the personal attacks if, um, I mean, he's tough. He'll, he'll kick your head in if, in a bar fight, no doubt about it. But in the, when it comes to the personal attacks, I don't know if he might say, I don't need this. 
you know, he actually thinks as though I don't need to be president, but I think if it's best for the country, I will. And I think that Governor Sununu said the same thing. He goes, I really don't want to be president. But if I look at my party, he's very Republican, and I don't think they have somebody who can win overall, can win, that understands moderates and Democrats like he does in New Hampshire, understands limited government, uh, I would probably do it. But I actually talked to him. We went to Del Frisco's the other day, last week after, just to – he never gets to New York, so I wanted to talk to him off. And I, me and Martha McCallum went with Chris Nunu across the street, and we just talked. And it's one of these people like, yeah, I really don't want the headache. I have a great life now. Uh, but I would do it if I felt as though the party was without somebody that could win the general. I don't care about the nom- – if you can win the nomination can't win the general, I, I don't think you should get the nomination. And that's where Republicans got to be smart enough to elect somebody like that. So that, that's the attitude. When you need to be president, that's really not why that position was created. Well, do you, do you think Trump uh, – there was some polling yesterday that in a head-to-head matchup, he actually looked pretty good against Biden. Do you think really that Trump good. is electable in, general, in a general election? Not unless he has another act. And the act is what I've been seeing lately when he went out with True Social and said – yeah, when Mike Fence said, yeah, I got some classified documents. By the way, you know what they were? Back, it looks like they were backgrounders before meeting with uh, world leaders. Mm-hmm. Certainly not, you know, certainly not some diabolical plan, but you could see that could happen. Going to uh, go meet with Netanyahu. Uh, what's the latest? Uh, here's the problem. Here's his opposition. Here's his chance at reelect. Here's what he's sensitive about. Go. And he kept it. For some reason, it stayed in his paperwork. So he kept it. And he said, listen, come get it. And they did. So uh, when, Trump, when Trump pointed out and said uh, he is extremely honestly Malone, he's never said uh, he's never knowingly did anything wrong in his life. I'm like, OK, that's that's a guy that understands how loyal Pence was with him for five years, because people don't like when you go after Pence. Sure. They don't like when you go after DeSantis. Um, he just doesn't. Yeah. So if he shows if he shows if he shows me some game, Frank, that he has something besides the hammer. Can you give me some subtlety? Yeah, and listen, things are looking good for him. He's beating DeSantis by 25 points, but remember, Hillary was crushing Obama early on, too, until they actually went head-to-head. So if you discount Donald Trump, you're just not paying attention, or you just hate him so much you can't face reality. The You mentioned the classified document issue. At the rate that we're going, uh, they're going to find classified documents in every single one of the homes that Jimmy Carter has built for Habitat for Humanity. Um, we have every day. It seems like somebody else right. has uh, classified documents. What do you see the uh, Pence revelation meaning for uh, both the Biden and Trump investigations? And do you think that we have a problem with overclassification in this country? It seems to be. But until I know what was in the Biden's papers, until I know what was in the Trump papers, until I, you know, we have an idea of Pence and we see how many other people come forward. But uh, one of the stories that I'm really blown away with today that I'm going to focus on is that yesterday Warner and Tom Cotton had um, equal outrage that the White House simply said no. When asked, we need to see what's in those documents. So we under, we're the Select Intelligence Committee. We're not going to leak. So can we need to see what the document? No, what they said? No. He said that and Warner came out and said, we saw the most sensitive Russian documents during the Russian investigation possible during the Trump years. Don't tell me we can't see this stuff, some of which dates back to his years in the Senate. So tell me what you had. What do you mean no? That no is not an option. 
So that this is going to be a huge standoff. So uh, when you say where is it overclassified, I'd love to see some stuff that isn't classified. Mm. You know, uh, birthday. You know, pictures of birthdays, or or I'd love to see you know um, uh, Sandlot baseball news or, and stuff. When I start seeing that, yeah. But right now, all I know is shouldn't be classified. Well, could you tell me what it is? You know, and then can we have a bipartisan look at this, or do people just want to make sure things are classified that might make them embarrass them? NFC Championship game, uh, 49ers and Cowboys, uh, AFC Championship, you got uh, the, the Chiefs and, uh, and the Bengals. How do you see things playing out? Uh, well, you know, the Eagles host the 49ers. Oh, Eagles. I'm and, sorry. I, of yeah. course, last week, I, I'm all the brain most complete te- Right. As much as uh, I'm in uh, awe with the Chiefs to the Giants, I think the best team in football are the 49ers. Even with their unheralded quarterback, who has yet to lose, which is one of the one of the great stories. You thought Kurt Warner was great. I know what Kurt Warner came from Arena Football, and that's always going to be a story that's movie worthy. And he got him into the Hall of Fame. But Brock Purdy, mm. last player taken to the draft, wearing street clothes on the sideline until he's asked to start and goes undefeated. If he gets this team to the Super Bowl, uh, I think that if if any team can go on the road and beat the Eagles, I think it's going to be the 49ers. So my prediction, for the third time in history, the 49ers play the Bengals in the in the Super Bowl. And I think it sells. I think people will love it. It is interesting that this uh, the remaining playoff picture seems to be dominated by younger quarterbacks, which is uh, kind of the opposite of what we've seen with the exception of uh, Mahomes and the Chiefs in the Super Bowl that he was in. Uh, we have seen kind of older quarterbacks dominating the Super Bowl picture the last few years. Yeah, I mean, it, it is definitely a changing of the guard except for Tom Brady. I mean, half the Tom Brady's teammates are broadcasters or eligible for the Hall of Fame. It's unbelievable that we see all these generate from Randy Moss on down. We see these generations watching Amendola on Special Forces on the reality show on Fox, which is awesome, by the way. It's, everyone should watch. And I'm like, wait a second. You guys were all winning Super Bowls with Tom Brady, and the guy is still playing. So outside, uh, you know, there really is a changing of the guard. There's, there's Aaron Rodgers, there's Brady, and then there's this new generation of really great quarterbacks. And I think we're going to see it because – We've done such a great job, or the NFL has done such a great job protecting the quarterbacks. They got a chance to actually scan the field and survive <laughs> those days of just knocking out quarterbacks for a year and a half, like Leonard Marshall did to Joe Montana, and was and, you know Tarkington was crushed by Coy Bacon of the Cincinnati Bengals, and that was it for him. Uh, you know, you see all these stories, and you know by the end of Don Marino's career, thirty-six years old, he was going to go to the Vikings because I'm just a mess. I can't do it. Mm. We're just not seeing hits like that anymore because we're protecting them. So you're seeing a cerebral position. So I think a lot more records are going to fall uh, in the years to come. And well, why, even Brock Purdy, watch him scan the field. I'm thinking to myself, how does he learn that? And I think they're doing a lot of the virtual reality training with these uh, goggles. I think that these camps are so sophisticated now that the Mannings run, that you really got players, these quarterbacks, who really understand the game at a level they never really – could or had to in, in previous years. Yeah, so I'd say uh, I think this is going to continue be continue to happen. Uh, Brock Purdy, twenty three years old. It's incredible that he has this kind of poise on the football team on the football field. It's really incredible. Brian, uh, we'll be w- watching you on Fox, listening on radio. What can we look forward to today? Oh yeah, we got uh, we got Johan Hari. He talks about uh, getting our focus back, how how we're distracted on a daily basis, and how to do it. Do you know, for example, Frank, if I'm talking to you and you got text and you look down and then looked up and continued our conversation, 
on average, it takes 23 minutes to get back your level of focus. Wow. And that's what these iPhones and things have done. You've got to check this guy out. He's got he's TED Talks. He's got a brand-new uh, uh, book out. Uh, Mark Thiessen will be unwinding a lot of things we just discussed today, including Donald Trump getting back on Facebook. Uh, David Bonson inside the uh, economy. And Jason Chaffetz on the stiff arm that uh, Comer's getting when he asked for the bank records of President Biden and mm. Hunter Biden. They said, no, I don't think so. That's really never happened before. <laughs> so we'll discuss that uh, as well as uh, the border. Uh, this whole uh, uh, there's 28 states suing the federal government for this new parole system where in your country we pick you up and fly you in so you don't have to walk to the border. Can you believe that? Flying people in without the governor's permission from their respective countries. So that's got to stop, obviously. And that uh, hopefully it'll be a great show that everyone wants to watch. And uh, Matt Taibbi is going to be on this weekend uh, with Tim Scott amongst our uh, great guests. Really? And, oh, so uh, we'll wh- do, what is Matt Taibbi uh, going to be talking about, the Ukraine situation? Well, he's going to well, be talking about his Elon Musk calling him up and saying, oh. take a look at the Twitter files. Uh, well, and he was, just, he was supposed to be on last week. And he said, I just got a call from Elon. They want me out in San Francisco. So we went out. So what he's been able to unwind. Now, keep in mind. He is a guy that wrote The Clown President. Not a Trump fan. Right. Big no, journalist. He's in Russia for yeah. Yeah, 11 years. And he can't believe what he's seeing. He can't believe what has been done with the FBI, Twitter, what that, to, that went out just to stop Trump and all conservatives. They would plot and plan against him. And there was a group formed called Hamilton 68 with Mike Morrell, with uh, John Podesta, as evil as it gets. And with two other people whose names elude me right now, who would go out and shadow and, and insist on shadow banning certain conservative thought or get them trending in the other way. Every time a conservative would trend, they would say they would get it uh, looked at as Russian bots. Wow. And they say Russian bots are promoting conservatives and therefore shadow ban. I am looking this forward to a sophisticated to, effort. I'm looking forward to that conversation. Matt TV is one of my favorites. Brian Kilmeade, see him on TV, see him on radio. If uh, if you're awake, chances are he's on somewhere. Brian, thanks so much as always. All right, go get him. Thank you. 15 seconds of fame in a moment. Be heard on any subject for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. the Redskins singing The Other Side of Midnight. You want to be heard for 15 seconds. Now's your opportunity. 800-848-9222. It is time for... The 
other side of midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Brendan! Frank, I would never... Frank, I would never put a picture of Joe Biden up in my house. He lets in drugs and criminals, kills our citizens. His no bail laws are a joke. He is a liar. Especially- Fred in Yonkers. Frank, good morning. The other day I heard a Neil Diamond song on his birthday. He had a very tough life. Only Neil Diamond could scratch another Neil Diamond. <laughs> Cheech in Howard Beach. The great sanctuary state of New York has plenty of room for migrants out on the eastern end of Long Island. All the mayor has to do is put them on a Long Island railroad train with a one-way ticket. You- Mike in New Jersey. Good morning, Frank. I was just curious. While changing Carmine's diapers, if you uncovered any classified documents, and if so, would that be considered a document dump? <laughs> and finally, David in the Bronx. Yes, the bathroom brawl between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert started when Marjorie refused to spare a square. <laughs> that's actually true. All right. Um, that's Lambs Lid on things for today. Back tomorrow. Is tomorrow Friday already? Ask Frank anything. Hopefully you'll come up with some good questions. You want to stay in touch with me? You can do so on uh, Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. I'll see you tomorrow. Frank Morano. Good day.